This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. What to do, Nation? I am Glenn Butler. I am your Wednesday Walker. I am on many podcasts, but this is a new podcast because we don't have enough of those, frankly. And for this one, I could only bring in my own flesh and blood, my my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. How are you doing today? I am doing rather well. Although, I think you forgot to tell them the name of your new podcast. Oh, yes, yes. Obviously, this this is the Glenn Butler Podcast, our spectacular, where we are going to try to have a podcast, we're going to try to have an hour, and we are going to try to make it spectacular. So I think it would, in its own way, it would be better if you didn't even try to make it an hour. Uh, well, we'll we'll see about that. It'll, you know, it, it will be what it will be. This is going to be a show about, you know, whatever whatever we feel like talking about, and today, with the upcoming release of The Hunger Games Part 3, Part 2, we are going to be talking about the entire series of movies, because, uh, of course, you, Scott, are a, uh, uh, would it be fair to call you a super fan? I think most super fans are far more into the movies than I am. I am one of the snob fans who restricts my enthusiasm for the original books oh. rather than these derivative film adaptations. Oh, oh, how, how upstanding of you. Uh, I, I, of course, knew nothing of this until, until you got into it, and boy, did you get into it. How did that happen, anyway? I'm not entirely sure. I was aware of the books when they originally came out, you know, I had heard of them and heard that they were quite popular and they sort of went on my mental to-read list of, you know, oh, here are some popular science fiction books. I should read them sometime. I've heard that they're good. And it didn't really go anywhere after that. And then it was a couple years later when they made the movie where it was sort of all over the news and I sort of remembered, oh, I wanted to read them. And so right around the time the first movie came out, I went out and got the books and read them, and generally liked them. I had my own quibbles with them, but I generally thought it was a very good series, and then I saw the movie, and then that was sort of it for a bit, except something about the story just sort of stuck in my head, and I wouldn't let it go. You know, most things you, like, watch it, or you read it, and then you just sort of move on, you read something else. And for something about this series, just sort of stuck in my head and I couldn't let it go and so I started to investigate further I started to read like corollary books I started to read like analysis of the story and I started to get into like fan communities online and stuff like that which there was a lot of at that time because the movie was providing it a large boost in popularity very popular yeah but since only the first movie had come out still most people that were, you know, there were people that were just a fan of the movie, but most people that were fans of the series were people that had read the books, because only one-third of the series was in movie form so far. It received a popularity boost because of the movie, but a lot of the fan community was still people that had read the books. And, and so I started to get involved in that, and that sort of 
extended it, you know, rather than just read it and then move on to something else. And it's, oh yeah, that's a book I read. It was sort of an ongoing concern in my mind as I became involved in these fan communities online. And so I sort of stayed involved in it in that way. And so it's so it stuck with me like that. And what I became curious about as I saw the way the fandom community was evolving with the people that had read the books and the people that were mainly fan through the movie and the disdain most book fans had for the movie, which is not at all unique to Hunger Games fandom. You'll find that in... Oh, absolutely everything. Yeah. So what I became curious about is exactly how much of the story, as originally presented in the books and supposedly adapted into the film, how much of that story actually made it into the film. I could follow the story because I read the books. I already knew the story. But how much of that story was easily understood by somebody who had only experienced it via the movie? And that's how I dragged Glenn into it. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was a total uh, neophyte on, on all of this. And did basically get dragged in. Yes, as you tend to drag me into things from time to time. That's um, what I do. That's what you do. I dragged you into pro wrestling. Uh, yeah, actually, actually you did, and now and now I'm here on the glorious place to be uh, podcast network, so there's a thing. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks. Now, now I have so many of my friends because of wrestling, <laughs> uh, but uh, I do not intend for this to be a uh, wrestling show, because frankly we have a lot of them, so many of them, and a lot of them are great, uh, and I'm on many of them too. So basically, I wanted to use Glenn as a social experiment to make him, well, make is such a strong word, get him to watch the movies, or at that time, the movie, and then interrogate him to see how much of the story he understood. This, this, this was my angle on it. I believe at the time, you were just bored out of your mind and desperate for anything to distract you. I, I was bored out of my mind. I was desperate for things to distract me. And you kept talking about it, and it was on Netflix. It's on Netflix is a very good reason to finally bother to watch something. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So this was a, this was a couple years ago when, when only the first movie had come out so far. And so we watched it together, and Quan had a lot of interesting thoughts that never would have occurred to me. Because he was coming at it, you know, from a different angle. He was coming at it fresh. And it was very interesting to me to get his perspective... The perspective of somebody who wasn't already familiar with the story. The perspective of somebody who didn't know all the details that weren't necessarily communicated via the movie. And for a long time, that was it. We watched the one movie. The second movie came out. Glenn didn't really have an interest. Third movie came out. Glenn still didn't really have an interest. But the idea kept popping up. You know, every now and then, he'd say, Oh, I should watch that second movie. And I'd be like, Yeah, sure, that'd be interesting. And then nothing would ever happen. But now, with the as we record this section, I don't think this podcast is going to go up until after the movie comes out, right? Uh, hopefully right after uh, the last movie comes out. We're recording this section earlier in the week, and so the movie is coming out later this week. Mockingjay Part 2. And so, since Glenn has this new podcast he's trying to fill out, we came up with this idea that we thought would be interesting to get him to watch the rest of the films, and then... Compare our perspectives. Me, as somebody who has read the books and has been involved in online fandom surrounding the books, and Glenn, as somebody who knows of the series solely via the movies and me talking about it. Yeah, they named two whole movies after her pin, right? That must be a pretty significant pin. 
every bit as significant as their ATM pin. Well, I don't know. I think they only have ATMs in the capital. I mean, out in the outlying districts, like, do they even have money? We think so? Oh, I, I'm sure this is a matter of much discussion. Well, I think they, they have money, but it, they don't go into much detail. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Sure. So what we did is we've just rewatched the first movie. And we're here to share thoughts on it. What are your thoughts, having rewatched it? Uh, well, the first thing I noticed when we started the movie was the cinematography. As in, good lord is that camera shaky. Yes, this is a comment that's been made by many people. Ah, I bet. And that kind of varies throughout the length of the movie, but doesn't really ever go away. I do think they do some interesting things with the cinematography. Like, when all the kids go to the town square for the uh, selection day... Effie comes out, and immediately the movie is cut like a music video, where everything is in extreme close-ups on her, and weird angles, and it's cutting every other second, and it almost goes into a different genre, in a way. And I guess that's part of the, like, stylized quality of the Capitol, because she's, like, a, a tiny little bit of all of that excess and decadence and everything. Decadence is a huge, 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 huge thing with all the people in the Capitol. Though not absolutely all the people in the Capitol. I did notice uh, Matthew McConaughey's character and uh, Lenny Kravitz's character aren't as... Who was that first actor? Did I say Matthew McConaughey? Yes, you almost did. Okay, okay. Um, Glenn has trouble telling the difference between Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is something we discovered the first time we watched the movie, which I find endlessly amusing. Yeah, sometimes there are just these pairs of actors that for some reason just, just get fused into one entry in my mind. And I have to stop and really think and remember uh, between Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, one of them was in Cheers, the other one was in Contact. And so I have to think of, like, a frame, a picture from the movie, and think, that face, is that the face of the guy from Cheers, or is that the face of the guy from Contact? Because if I don't stop and think about it, they just meld together. It, it's like Sandra Bullock and Julia Roberts for me. You can't tell the difference between Sandra Bullock and Julia Roberts? Well, one of them was in Pretty Woman, the other one was in Speed. And I have to stop and think, is this the one who was in Speed, or is this the one who was in Pretty Woman? And, and for some of the later movies, like, I don't even remember which one was in the football movie. Intimate Confessions here on the on, on uh, this, this episode of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. I agree with you on the cinematography. I sort of got the same idea that they were using sort of bizarre camera angles and bizarre focus lengths as a way of emphasizing how bizarre the capital is from the perspective of the people from the district. Yeah, except they don't keep doing that the whole time they're in the capital, because they spend a lot of time there and it would get pretty old. Well, they do it when they first show Effie there at the reaping scene. Yeah. And they also do it when the train is pulling into the capital and they get their first glimpses of the crowd waiting the train. Oh yeah, all, all the, the crowd of people waiting to see all the tweens who are going to bash each other's brains in in a couple of days. Yeah, you're all about the tweens bashing each other's brains in. This movie is all about the tweens bashing each other's brains in. That's the entire premise of the movie that every, is it every year? 
Yeah. It's it's every year, right? Yes. They they get a bunch of tweens and they get them to bash each other's brains in. Except it's a movie, so they're all twenty five, except the one who's tiny and young and small. Well, that's something else that I noticed is that, is that in in the reaping scene where they're all walking to the reaping, all of the extras they get to play the other children are actually children, whereas Jennifer Lawrence is like twenty two. So she's like the giantess of the children of District 12. Because everyone, all the extras surrounding her are actually 16, 17. She, she is from hardy folk. <laughs> now, obviously, a big part of the movie is the, uh, the love story. Which slightly horrified me the first time that we watched the movie. Because... I am about as tired of love triangles in young adult, or adult-adult, fiction as anyone. I grew quite despondent <laughs> when they, they started, like, jamming together Katniss and Peeta for their love story, and then started showing extraneous shots of Gale back home, kind of, like, staring at the TV screen forlornly. Yes. I can never figure out where Gale was supposed to be in those scenes. He's in, like, some sort of open-air workshop or something. Yeah, yeah, they have all these kind of generic locations in, in, in the district, don't they? And, I mean, the movie... I don't know why any of this is in the book. The movie introduces Gale first. And he's the only one who gets, like, any dialogue or any actual scenes with Katniss before she actually goes off for the Hunger Games. And so, he's almost emphasized first as her friend, because I deeply, deeply believe that it's okay for people in movies to have friends. Yes. They, they don't all have to fall in love. In fact, I would prefer that fewer of them fall in love. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a demisexual thing, I don't know. But, um... Well, that is all the same as in the book. The way, none of that's really changed. The way Gail's introduced and the way Pete is introduced. Right. Okay. okay. The only thing the only thing that's changed in the book is that when Peta is introduced, the backstory between him and Katniss is actually explained, and maybe that can transition into your desperate fumbling attempts to try to understand the scene with the two of them and the loaf of bread based on these scant few clues the movie throws at you. Oh yeah, I had no idea what was going on there until uh, we finished the movie and you asked me about it. And then explained it to me. Because I I thought it was something about, like... Peta's parents seemed upset with him. And you... I didn't notice until you pointed out that the bread he was th throwing out of the pigs was burned. So I, I didn't get that as an important part of the scene. They show these, like... During the reaping scene, they show these quick flashbacks. Which is supposed to... I suppose trigger... Memories of people who have read the book to say, hey, this is really relevant now. But if you don't know what that scene is before you see split second flashes of it, it's, it's just nothing. I actually have here from the first time you watched the movie in 2013, I actually noted down your actual thought because I wrote down some of your more interesting thoughts. And this is what you had to say the first time you saw the movie. And I quote, so he was throwing bread at the pigs. And I guess maybe she was angry because she thought that was wasteful? And then there was bread lying in the street, and I don't know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
after having seen the entire movie, all the various times they show flashbacks to that scene, that was your understanding of that incident. Whereas in the book, they like spend half a chapter and go through the entire thing and exactly what happened and exactly why it means so much to Katniss. Yeah, yeah, apparently why, why it meant so much to her and why he was like already in love with her or something. Okay, they're not actually tweens. What are, what are they supposed to be, like 15? In that bread scene, they're actually supposed to be 11. They actually are tweens in that scene. They actually... Okay. They in the whole rest of the movie, they're 16. But in that scene, they are actually 11. They are They are actually tweens, and yet they do not bash each other's brains in. And yet they're played by, like, 18-year-old Josh Hutcherson and 21-year-old Jennifer Lawrence. Even though they're supposed to be 11. Yeah, I don't know what makeup... I may have those ages wrong. I should probably have looked that up before I just said it off the top of my head, but... Eh. I don't know what makeup you would put on a 20-year-old woman to make her look 11. Um, and whatever it is, it's damn creepy if you do know how to do that. Yeah, that might be some, like, thin Chris Evans in Captain America 1, like, CGI job. They didn't have the effects they, budget to do that oh, yeah. in this movie. Oh, yeah, they, they didn't have the effects budget to do anything in this movie. The, uh, the, the fire, the pit bulls at the end... Yeah, those were badly done. They were very, very badly done. I understand they got some budget for the second one after the first one made a gajillion dollars. They did. I, I, I looked it up recently. I think the first movie had a budget of like 75 or 80 million, and the second movie had a budget of 130 to 140 million. <laughs> in the book, those are like... Ter at the, 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 the mutations at the end, in the book, they're like terrifying monsters. Like genetically engineered and enhanced wolf monsters that are actually engineered to look like the dead tributes. So it's like you're being attacked by your former allies who you had killed earlier in the games. Except they've been transformed into monster wolves. Are it's terrifying and creepy and blood-curdling. And in the movie, it's like a bad CGI pit bull. Yeah, there isn't much that's that that I found terrifying and, and blood curdling and creepy in in the movie. That might be because I mean, we're used to dystopias by now. Yeah. And in the years since the Hunger Games came out and became so successful, we're really used to uh, teen dystopias. And I tend not to be that big a fan of dystopias in the first place because it seems like Whatever justification the author gives for our world crumbling to dust and this dystopic thing rising in its place always seems like a huge disconnect to me. Like, the biggest example for, uh, for me is uh, Children of Men, which was, on a technical level, an extremely well-made movie. It was a well-acted movie. It was fine enough. But the, the whole basis of the story was that people can't get pregnant anymore, ergo dystopia. People can't get pregnant anymore. Bippity boppity boo. Oppressive government regime. Plus, didn't that movie take place like 20 years later? Oh yeah, that was one of those uh, five minutes in the future deals. See, that is the one thing that I sort of give a pass to the Hunger Games compared to some other dystopias. It's like, it's not like there's tweens bashing each other's heads in every year in 2050. This takes place, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years in the future. So there is at least time for this new form of government to develop. This doesn't happen, like, next week. Sure. I mean, I mean, they say in the movie this is the 74th annual. I guess that could include me in that it was every year. Uh, the 74th uh, 
Hunger Games, and then there had to be the war or whatever before well, that. It's, it's the 74th Hunger Games, but the Hunger Games only started, and this is sort of hinted at, they show some text that explains a little bit, but they don't really go into it in the movie. And this is actually a misconception a lot of people have, that I find that a lot of people have. Just because the Hunger Games started 74 years ago doesn't mean that the nation of Panem started 74 years ago. Right. There was a revolt 74 years ago. They fought a war where the capital defeated the resistance in the districts and then instituted the Hunger Games. But the capital and the districts existed before that or else there wouldn't have been a capital to revolt against. So the whole government setup of the capital and the districts already pre-existed the beginning of the Hunger Games 74 years ago. And who knows how long it pre-existed the beginning of the Hunger Games 74 years ago. Pan Am could have existed for hundreds of years. For all we know. We don't know. Right. And the basis of, of the dystopia is basically... Like, this is a climate change movie, right? Like, that was the uh, inciting incident. Yeah, that's the apocalypse. Some, right. I, I saw someone online once argue that The Hunger Games is not post-apocalyptic. That just because it's a dystopia doesn't mean it's post-apocalyptic. But it is post-apocalyptic. It was an environmental apocalypse. It's described heavily... Well, not heavily, but it's described in a, a few pages of the book where Katniss reflects back on it. That there were... There was an environmental collapse, there was a flooding of coastal areas, sea level rise, changing weather patterns. Uh, there's a comment Katniss made that the sky was destroyed. And, you know, who knows what exactly that means in terms of, like, science detail. Or maybe that's just some propaganda from the capital that she's regurgitating to the reader. But there were, there were all, it was just all... Your typical environmental climate change collapse and also, you know, running out of resources, running out of oil. Right, you know? exa exactly. That's why they mine coal in District 12. Right, right. And, and, and Katniss actually says specifically, you know, we already tapped out large portions of the mine. That's why we have to dig so deep for it now. Yeah, that's why it's so dangerous for the uh, the schlubs in District 12. But yes. no, no one in the capital cares because they have their fancy haircuts. Yeah, essentially. Uh, yeah, that is one of the few causes for dystopia that I can kind of buy, because there is the apocalyptic change in in weather patterns and geographic features. There is, you know, very, very believably, uh, very, very soon, in our, in our world maybe, a change in distribution of resources and conflicts over limited resources and... You know, these are things that, that drive horrible, horrible entries in, in human events anyway. So that is one thing that I actually can kind of buy. But I wanted to get to uh, actually something else you said about Katniss maybe regurgitating propaganda to the reader. The book is told in the first person, right? Yes. How unreliable a narrator is she? Very. Okay, that is something that's really, really difficult to get across in a movie. Because you that, can't really tell a movie in the first person in the same way. That's actually, I meant to mention that before we were discussing cinematography. One of the ways that they use that, the shaky cam and the, and the unusual cinematography, they do use that in a couple of places to try to sort of emulate the first person perspective of the book. Where when Katniss is like fleeing for her life and the camera gets very shaky so it's hard to see what the hell is going on. And then when like Katniss starts to get very tired or when Katniss is stung by the tracker jacker venom. And then the whole camera starts blurring and tilting and shaking so much that you can't see what's happening. 
that's a way that they tried to use all of that unusual camera work to sort of try to emulate the first-person perspective of the book. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, it, it works in some places. It doesn't work that well in other places. But in some parts of the movie, I thought it actually worked rather well. It does It does work in a limited capacity. I think you only really can do that in a limited capacity. Like, to actually have the camera be, like, the first-person view. Because you do too much of that and it just looks like a video game. Well, not so much just having the camera the first-person view, but even, even when the camera is, like, third-person. Like, when the camera is following Katniss as she runs through the forest. But it's, like, shaking all over the place so that you can't really see very well. Which sort of emulates her perspective of fleeing in panic so she's not taking note of the details. Right, right. But this, at the same time, in order to make a movie out of it, you have to have scenes with people... You have to have scenes that Katniss isn't in. And well, so that... those take on more of a... Uh, uh, scare quotes objective quality because you don't I assume in the book it's just Katniss goes in the games and then whatever goes on behind the scenes just happens and she finds out about it like when they make the announcement about the winners and then yeah. when they make another announcement whereas in the movie in order to kind of flesh out the narrative they have scenes with President Snow they have scenes with the, the game masters at the uh, game central Apple store-ish place where I mean the workers in, in the control center seemed pretty traditional they didn't have the wacky haircuts they didn't have wacky earrings or tattoos or whatever they were just kind of clean-cut people in the all-white uniforms. So, is that some kind of class divide within the Capitol? Or do they just put on the flashy wigs when they leave work? It's probably a little bit of both. I don't know if they get into it in the movies, because they wouldn't they wouldn't get into it until, like, the fourth movie. But uh -huh. it, it is mentioned at one point in the books, there, there are class divides in the Capitol. Not everyone in the Capitol is a decadent elite. Right, because somebody still has to, like, drive the trains, right? Or, I mean, I, I guess they could have some, you know, fanciful future where everything is automated and they're served on hand and foot by robots. You know, it's but like that's not, not really what they're going for. It's like not everyone in Manhattan lives in a $2 million penthouse. Right, exactly. So someone still has to staff the bodega. The lower classes in the capital are not oppressed like people in District 12. But, you know, they live under the same dystopian government. They they live under the dystopian government and are a little... I mean, they're better off than the people in the outlying districts, obviously, because they're not in horrible mines and they're not scavenging for squirrels so their family has something to eat that day, unless they have to sell it for other basic necessities. But they're maybe not quite as well off as uh, Stanley Tucci's character, who is just like... The entertainment type and the ultimate entertainment type, actually. Yes. That that was some. They have some really good casting in this movie, right? In, in secondary characters, I have problems with the casting of the primary characters, but the secondary characters are cast brilliantly. Stanley Tucci plays that role perfectly. Elizabeth Banks is great in this movie. I have qu I have quibbles with her characterization in later movies, but Elizabeth Banks as Effie is one of the things that this first movie gets spot on. Perfect. And Donald Sutherland, cast as President Snow, is... Again, I can't even imagine who else would be in that role. That is Donald Sutherland. Yeah, he's he's always good as, as the uh, scheming political type. And actually, that was one thing that 
came to mind immediately when I saw him is this is basically a continuation of the uh, TV show that he did with Gina Davis, right? Where he was the scheming... Was was he the Speaker of the House or a Senator? I think he was Speaker of the House. He was, he was the Speaker of the House, and Gina Davis was the first female Vice President, and the President got killed, and Gina Davis became our first female President. The show was on in 05, and it, it was basically all about Donald Sutherland scheming in creepy ways sometimes to get Gina Davis to quit the presidency because th this is just wrong. He never intended for you to be president. And Gina Davis had to stand strong. And now we find out, after all this time, Donald Sutherland finally became president. And these are his policy initiatives. Like, where, where is Gina Davis? She could have saved us from this. Gina Davis would not have supported the Create the Hunger Games bill. No, not at all. How did he get that through the house? You know, the house will vote for anything. He said it would lower the deficit and the Republicans went for it. I mean, God, we, we talk about the radicalization of politics, but jeez. He promised that all the revenue from the Hunger Games would go into an ironclad lockbox. I don't know that ironclad lockboxes are that popular. <laughs> and back on uh, Stanley Tucci as Caesar Flickerman, that whole thing... Uh, with the parade of of the uh, tweens who are about to bash each other's brains in, was obviously, I mean, based right on the uh, Parade of Nations in the Olympics, you have the, the commentators breaking down all the kids and then doing puff pieces, interviewing them and, and doing stats and everything. Um, I, I really want, you know, 2016 is just around the corner and we have some more Olympics coming up. Give me Caesar Flickerman with Matt Lauer. <laughs> that parallel and that obvious comparison uh, between the sort of glitz and glamour that they have in the movie, in the Capitol, and the sort of glitz and glamour that we have around sports and around celebrity, I think really gets to a possible indictment of the viewer. There is a semi-famous possibly apocryphal quote from Truffaut saying that it's not possible to make a genuinely anti-war movie because to depict war is to ennoble it because we are conditioned to see violence and war and all these things in movies and to be attracted to it and there are all of these stories that we tell over and over and over again about noble soldiers and about people persevering through great strife and that is basically the story that they're telling in The Hunger Games. That is the mechanism of, of social control that President Snow talks about. It's the hope that your kid can bash all the other tweens' heads in and win. And even though you are ridiculously, ludicrously oppressed by this government, you may get a little bonus if, if your kid wins this game. And so all the celebrity and all of the media tricks to kind of control people's attention gets put all on this one thing in order to prevent larger riots. But we get drawn into that story too, because we are conditioned in the same way to an extent, uh, I think a pretty large extent, uh, to fall into that story of the noble survivor who may not want 
to do violence onto other people, but has to because of conditions she can't change. And it's this story that we just lock into. And I'm wondering how much these movies and these books are going to be a condemnation of that and how much they're going to be just a straightforward reiteration of it. And I get the impression that the movies and the books could differ on this score. I would say we don't know yet on the movies, because a lot of that is going to be in the fourth one. I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers here. There is a revolution against the dystopic government that happens in the later books and in the later movies. And if you remember, the first time you mentioned that quote to me, that you cannot depict a war story without glorifying war, my immediate response to that was the Mockingjay movie, if they do it right. Because the way it's depicted in the book is very much a war story that condemns everyone. Condemns the dystopic government, condemns the revolution, condemns everyone because nobody's hands are clean. Everyone is a scheming, manipulative bad, bad person. Yes, everyone in this movie is a bad, bad person. And that also plays into the Katniss as a bad narrator in the books because she is told many things by many people and tends to believe a lot of it. So she tells the story as if things are true that as the reader, you sort of figure out, wait, that isn't true. There's a dramatic irony there where the reader is able to recognize more of what's actually happening, whereas Katniss, because she's a fairly naive 16-year-old girl, doesn't quite read between the lines the way the reader does. Yeah, I, I think the central way of kind of crystallizing this is to say, when we watch this movie, or when we read this book, are we rooting for Katniss to win, or are we rooting for her to invalidate the institution of The Hunger Games? And she kind of tries to find a middle way there. Well, that's sort of the whole crux of the story. Is that she's trying to win, and then right at the end, when they change the rule back and try to get her to kill PETA, she spins on a dime to invalidating the entire thing. And this gets into arguments about the love story and the love triangle, as some people see it where she spends the entire book and the entire movie, her primary motivation is she has to survive so she can go home and take care of her sister. Because if she die, her father's already dead, and her mother has... And her mother seems pr uh, pretty uh, uh, torn up by the trauma of, oh, everything that's ever happened in her life, probably. Yes. Her mother has rather severe mental illnesses relating to the trauma of existing in District 12 and the death of her father. And Katniss is very unsympathetic toward her mother's mental illness because Katniss is all about survival. That's what she does. She goes out and she hunts so that they have food so they can survive. She trades on the illegal black market so they can get what they need to survive. And her mother, sitting in a chair, having a mental illness, and not being able to work for money, does not help them survive. So she has no sympathy for her mother's mental illness. Well, I'll be interested to see how that is developed when we watch the next movie, because whatever personal traumas Katniss has been through before, she's been through a hell of a trauma now. Yes. We'll, we'll, we'll get more into that after we watch the second movie, but yes, right. that, okay. is, that, that is a heavy theme of the rest of the series. 
But anyway, like I was saying, Katniss is very straightforward, focused on survival. And the entire time she's in the games, her focus is she has to survive so she can go home and take care of her sister. And then right at the end, when she has to kill Peeta in order to survive and go home to take care of her sister, she spins on a dime and threatens suicide if they don't let him live. You can interpret that in different ways depending on how much of a Katniss Peeta shipper you are. But that is, that is sort of a point of contention within the fandom of exactly what her motivations are in that moment. Right, right. And that gets back into the love story, which, regardless of what the character may or may not feel, which I don't know, that also plays into the sort of cliche story that the Capitol is constructing. When they see the possibility for this, you know, star-crossed lover thing, Hamish immediately gloms onto it because he knows that they don't care who wins, they don't care what happens, as long as they can tell a story that captivates people. I mean, they're just looking for ratings and an absence of riots, which they do actually have, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But the, the love story, I thought more and more as the movie went on, was just being crowbarred into the story by the Capitol. By Hamish in order to, sa- to try to save Katniss and Peeta, but also by the Game Master and, and by that whole apparatus in order to have something that draws ratings. And that I would kind of parallel to the way that love stories... I think, get crammed into everything because it's a story we're used to telling and it's a story we like telling, a lot of us. And it's a story a lot of us like seeing. And so it happens over and over and over and over again. A big part of this fandom, I get the impression, is about shipping, is about whether you think Katniss really belongs with Peeta, or whether you think she really belongs with Gale, or whether you think she really belongs with, I don't know, Effie. Which, I'm sure it's out there. Each their own. <laughs> I'm not here to judge. I don't judge. Keffy. Effness. So the shipping is an important part of the characters in the story, and an important part of the fandom in the real world. And my reading is that the shipping that goes on in the movie by Hamish is obviously to try to save their lives because he's playing to what the Game Masters want. And on the Game Masters part, it's just to tell a good story and distract everyone with this star-crossed lovers thing. And on Katniss's part, I think it's equally cynical. And I think it's equally storytelling in that she knows that's what they want she gets the message uh from Hamish you know you call that a kiss telling her to play it up because it could save your life and she is all about survival in her day-to-day and this is only more so so I think that is equally storytelling throughout by everyone in the movie and in fact my preferred ship I think would be Katniss and her own damn self those are all really excellent points and very a very common, common viewpoint in the fandom, actually. In the books, it's slightly different, because in the books, it's entirely first-person Katniss. So, before the games, when Hamish says, Hey, if you pretend to be lovers, you can get some sponsors. But then once they go into the arena, there are no scenes with Hamish. Right. And the, the notes that you talked about, they don't exist in the book. You can't send notes to your tributes. So they only send items? Yes. Okay. 
But Katniss does this thing where, with her internal monologue where she can sort of figure out what Hamish is trying to say with his items. Because they think sort of similarly because they're both from the disadvantaged part of District 12. That's another thing that isn't even mentioned in the movie. We'll get to that later. There, there's, there are class divides within District 12. And Katniss and Hamish are both from the disadvantaged, poorer side of District 12. Whereas Peta is from the slightly better off, slightly more financially stable, slightly more able to feed themselves part of District 12. Right. He, he's His family is uh, bakers, so they at least have supplies to make food yeah. all the time. They get to work in a bakery rather than going down to the coal mine. Right. So Katniss and Hamish are sort of, that's sort of a theme in the books, is the two of them are sort of on the same wavelength about a lot of things. Hamish is much more scheming, and Katniss is much more just sort of straightforward, but they're both sort of on the same wavelength, and so they sort of understand each other on a level that Peta never really gets to. Like, there's a big deal in the beginning of the games in the book where Katniss is looking for water and she can't find water. And she thinks, well, you know, I had that big debut at the parade and people liked me at the interview. I must have sponsors. Hamish can send me water. And she starts just, like, talking to the air because she knows she's on screen. She's like, Hamish, send me some water. He doesn't send her anything. And at first she's really pissed about it. And then she eventually figures out, wait, the only reason he wouldn't send me water is if I was near finding water. And it sort of redoubles her resolve and she eventually finds the water. So she and Hamish sort of have this, they, they sort of understand each other on that level. And so when he sends gifts, they don't come with a note like they do in the movie, but in her internal monologue, she's like, oh, why did he send me this? He's, this is what he's trying to tell me by sending this. The messages are coded in a way that might not really come across in a movie. Yes. The, the note is sort of a way of explaining to the viewer the conclusions Katniss eventually reaches by her internal monologue. But the point is that it's all Katniss internal monologue. So there is no Hamish trying to push the love story, and there is no game makers trying to push the love story. It's all Katniss and her actions and her internal thoughts. And so she is doing, to an extent, exactly what she said. Especially right after they make the announcement about two winners and she goes and finds Peta by that riverbank. She initially is motivated partly by the two winners, you know... I can't just let him die if I have the chance to save him. She's sort of she's sort of moral like that. But also she is consciously trying to sell the lover's storyline because she thinks it'll get them more sponsors. There's a point where Katniss is talking to Peta and they're talking about how, you know, hey, we must have sponsors. One of them can send you medicine. And then Hamish sends a gift and it's not medicine, it's that pot of broth that they got. And she has a whole like page or two of internal monologue trying to figure out why did he send me the broth instead of medicine? Where eventually she figures out, oh, I kissed him once and he sent me the pot of broth. He must want me to do more of that. So she is, especially initially, and to a certain extent always, playing into the, the storyline, like you said. But because the book is Katniss's internal thoughts, and it's all first-person Katniss, as the reader, you can sort of see as her perspective shifts. You can see, as the reader, where she starts acting towards PETA without first thinking, I need to do this in order to get a sponsor interested. Where she's just sort of acting on her own now. And she even has internal monologue about, wait, did I do that for the sponsors or did I do that for me? I can't even tell anymore. 
Yeah, that's that's the part of this that feels a little tiresome to me, but that's that's just me. That's my thing. Well, that was also, in a lot of people's opinion, that was also very badly depicted in the movie. It is the opinion of a lot of people within the fandom that I've encountered that the the Gary Ross, the director of the first movie, and was also involved in adapting the book to this to the screenplay for the first movie, he very much downplayed the love story, very much downplayed PETA's role to a great extent, to the point where the entire scene, these, this pivotal event in Katniss's life, where PETA saves her life and she feels indebted to him for the rest of her life, and it connects them for their entire lives and is the whole reason why they have this weird relationship when they both get reaped into the games together, that entire scene is shown through like a couple of half second flashback flashes. Oh yeah, like we covered before, made no yeah. sense on first watch. So so that is a criticism of the first movie that a lot of book fans have is that Gary Ross very much downplayed the love story, very much downplayed Peta's role in the story, period. And so that doesn't really come across. The gradual shift of Katniss's attitude from I need to kiss him so they'll send us gifts to wait a minute, I actually kind of liked that kiss. To the end, where, from your explanation, she's all about trying to survive and she's trying to sell the love story so that they can survive. Oh, right at the end, all she has to do to survive is shoot Peter in the chest. They're standing there and he says, kill me, you can go home. And she doesn't kill him and go home. So at that point, she's not entirely about her own survival. And the book has a lot of her, again, her internal monologue that leading up to that decision... And it's still not entirely clear, and it's still an argument within fandom, you know, exactly why did she make that decision. But it's a lot, it's a much more interesting discussion given her internal thoughts in the book rather than the movie where she just looks like determined and pissed at everybody. As much as uh, Jennifer Lawrence tried to uh, imbue it with uh, that kind of depth that might not have been there. I actually think Jennifer Lawrence does a rather good job as Katniss. I'm not a fan of the casting in general because Katniss in the books is not a white person. That was something that we were going to get to in a little bit, yes. Um, we can do it now if you want. Do you want to get into that? Uh, before, okay. Because this was a controversy at the time the first movie was made. Well... There was one other note of uh, racial controversy I wanted to move on to before that. Okay. Um, portraying the Hunger Games as a mechanism of social control means that you might also want to depict some of the things that they want to maintain control of so badly. And so there is the riot in, where was it, District 11? Yes. In District 11, after Rue is killed... Uh, the the one uh, tribute who actually is portrayed as just a little, little girl. Uh, there are a couple that seem kind of young, but Rue is the youngest and the cutest and all of that. And obviously horrifically killed. There's this riot that takes place after, I assume it was her father, starts wrecking shit when, when she's killed. And, of course, District 11 appears to be the Black District. And so, in a scene that plays, I think, a little differently in 2015 than it did in 2012, there is a riot in a largely black population after a young child is murdered. Yes. And to show that being violently cracked down on by the, uh, scare quotes, peacekeepers, 
this monolithic, faceless police force. I think it does play differently now after the last several years of rampant murder of black children that isn't new, but it's highlighted differently now. Yeah, people were paying much more attention to that and those incidents than they were five or ten years ago. Right. These things have always been happening, but now we have the Black Lives Matter movement. You're right about how that scene plays now. The interesting part of that scene is that, obviously, because the book is first-person Katniss and Katniss is in the arena, that scene is not in the book. Right. That scene is a complete invention of the people who adapted it to the screenplay. Now, it's not explicitly stated in the book, but in the book, a lot of the people that we know that come from District 11 are black people. Rue and Thresh, the two tributes in this movie, and also in the next movie, it, one of the two tributes in the next movie from District 11. At least those three out of the four people we know from District 11 are specifically described as black people in the book. I don't know if that makes it the black district, but it's not entirely a coincidence that these three black characters all come from the district with the assigned duty of growing and harvesting food. Yes, that's another element that's... That, that is... I don't know if the author, Suzanne Collins, has ever said this explicitly, but that is seen by a lot of people as sort of an extension of our current legacy of enslaving black people to harvest things for us. Right. Well, of course, all science fiction movies are actually about the present. Yeah. They're, they're all relevant to our present day in some way. And so, I don't know whether it's the Black District. I just say that as shorthand because in the movie, when they show the crowds, all or almost all of them are black. Also, in uh, racial insensitivity, there, 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 is the, there is the issue of uh, whitewashing that went on in the casting and production of this movie. Do you want to go into that a little? Well... Like we said, there were socioeconomic divides within the capital where there are some better off, you know, the elites in the capital and some people that are not as well off in the capital. There is a racial and socioeconomic divide within District 12, which makes sense from the capital's perspective because if you can get District 12 fighting with each other, then they won't all unite and fight against the capital. This is explained in the books. This doesn't exist in the movies. In the movie, they have whitewashed literally most of the district because most of district 12 as described in the books is not white people the people who in the book are said to live in town they own the shops like Peta's family owns the bakery and there's also like a butcher shop and there's other you know shops like that they're sort of the well-off side of the district they own these businesses they you know make a profit they're able to feed themselves regularly they don't have to go to work in the mines because they own these businesses in town and they are the more well-off side of the district. Most of the district lives in what they call the seam because it's near the coal mine. And the residents who live in the seam are explicitly described in the books. They're described as having olive skin and black hair and they are explicitly described and depicted as being a different racial group than the people in town. Now, this is obviously set hundreds of years from now, so if we want to assign names to these racial groups, I think we're probably, you know, 
racial identification because race is just a product of culture because people just invent races and decide who they want to assign people to. It's not actually a biological thing for the most part. Yeah, yeah. These things morph and change over time, obviously. So if we're going to assign racial identities to fictional groups living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the future, I'm not sure we can call, well, these people are white and these people are this and these people are that. I'm not sure if we can do that. We can't. We may not be able to do it for characters living hundreds of years in the future. We can do it for actors cast to play them. Yeah. Well, yes. But the point is that the people who live in town and the people who live in the seam are depicted as being a different racial group according to their understanding of race at that time. The people in town have a racist dislike of people from the seam because they see them as a different race. They see them as inferior. They see them as dirty and unclean and unworthy. They have a racist dislike for the poorer, less well-off, not able to support themselves, desperate people who live in the seam and scrounge for food and go to work in these incredibly dangerous coal mines and hunt illegally because that's the only way they can manage to feed themselves. And so... Three quarters of the main cast, if you want to say the main characters in this series, are Katniss, Peeta, Gale, and Haymitch. Katniss, Gale, and Haymitch are all from the seam. None of them are of the same racial group as Peeta. That's three out of the four main characters that have been whitewashed in casting this series, and the vast majority of the general residents of the district should also be depicted as olive-skinned people from the seam rather than white trash from Appalachia. Right, that's essentially the the class divide that they're going for, and I understand that that is a deep class divide uh, with, you know, so-called white trash in Appalachia, but it doesn't exactly play that way outside of that environment, I think. This was a controversy at the time when they were casting the movie in 2011. I remember reading about it at the time. I hadn't read the books yet, but I'd read about the controversy over casting Jennifer Lawrence in the role of Katniss. So this is not a new issue, but it is it's definitely something that is worth mentioning. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't let it go by unmentioned. You know, generally like I said before, I think Jennifer Lawrence generally does a good job playing the role of Katniss. I think I think she does a very good job at times, and she's obviously a great actress. She has an Academy Award. So there's, you can't say anything bad about her, but the choice of her to play this role, I think, is worthy of criticism. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and that's something you sort of lose in the movie. You lose, because Katniss and Hamish both come from the seam, both have that background in common, both come from a family of coal miners, both have that like desperate, scrounging, scratching to survive. They both have that background in common, whereas Peta doesn't. And so that is one of the ways that Katniss and Hamish were always sort of able to understand each other, and Peeta never quite understands them on that level. Similarly, when you come to the so-called love triangle with Peeta, Katniss, and Gale, Katniss and Gale have that connection. They both struggle to survive. They both scratch and scrape to be able to feed their families. They hunt together because they need food. Both of their fathers died in the coal mine because they were forced to work in the coal mine. Katniss and Gale have that connection where Katniss and Peeta never will. 
Katniss and Peeta, we can get into this more in the later movies, Katniss and Peeta have the connection of having been in the Hunger Games together, that Katniss and Gale will never share that connection, and that sort of becomes the conflict in the second movie, is she has a connection with each one of these people that she can never share with the other. But for the duration of the first movie, she has this incredibly strong connection with Gale because of their shared circumstances that she can never share with Peeta. And you lose, you sort of lose that in the movie because you lose the different social economic groups, you lose the different racial groups, you you lose a lot of the background where the story is set against because they've whitewashed most of the district. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely a layer of subtlety that could have been depicted in the movie. I mean, it could have been implied in the movie through casting, uh, if not explicitly detailed in dialogue, because that. Well, it would only take, like, one line of dialogue. I mean, they have arguments about this in the book. She, you would only need, like, you know, one scene where she says something like, you'd never understand, you live your cushy life in the bakery, your father didn't die in the coal mine, you wouldn't understand scraping to survive like that. They have arguments along that vein in the books, and it would have only taken, like, one scene to sort of explain that bit. Sure, sure, yes. Um, is there anything else you'd like to uh, hit on before we finish our segment on the first movie? There's one note that I sort of want to get your reaction to. In the movie, they cast Lenny Kravitz in the role of Cinna, the clothing designer that Katniss is assigned to in the Capitol. Right. Someone else who isn't really as extravagant as... A lot of the people we see in the Capitol, but still, yes. he has a couple subtle notes. He has, I think, some eyeshadow. He had a couple earrings. He has he has gold eyeliner. That's his sort of signature right accessory in the book. The book specifically cites that he is not as flamboyantly dressed. He dresses mostly in black, mostly simple, but he has the gold eyeliner and a couple little flares like that. Right. That's one of the reasons why Katniss gravitates toward him because he looks relatively normal. Yeah. Compared to the three people that were working on her before, where one of them has like orange corkscrew hair, and one of them has like blue skin. Oh, you mean the people who work on her as soon as she gets to the Capitol, hosing her down? Yeah, the people who the people who wax her and hose yeah. her down and, and buff her skin and all that. Those. Yeah, and then kind of sneer at her and say, "Well, we might have to hose you down again." Yeah, that that is sort of glossed over quickly in the movie, but is depicted relatively accurately. I think the line in the book specifically, they're not like sneering at her, but they're sort of like innocently condescending. Like one of them makes a comment like, wow, you look almost human now. Oh. Like they're genuinely excited for her. Oh no. Now you get to come into the world of people. Yes. So they're not sneeringly condescending, they're just sort of... So, uh, deep inside their own bubble. Yes. Very good description of it. So, Cinna. So, Cinna. They cast Lenny Kravitz as Cinna. I never really pictured Lenny Kravitz in the role of Cinna. You obviously never read the book, so you don't know. Well, how do you think Lenny Kravitz works in that role? I think he works fine. I, I think the whole idea behind the character that you were talking about was portrayed well. I think he worked fine in the role. Reading the books... I don't really picture Lenny Kravitz as Cinna. The person I picture in the role of Cinna is Chef Marcus Samuelson. <laughs> Marcus Samuelson? Yes. Sort of okay, I, uh, skinnier, skinnier, a little more chipper. 
skinnier. He has... He's not quite as, like, quiet and breezy as Lenny Kravitz plays the character, but he's, you know, more, you know, more like Chef Marcus Samuelson. Interesting. That that's who that's who I picture. That would never that would never have occurred to me. Although it's not, it's 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 not like a huge shift. No, not a huge shift. That's who I see in my head. Well, I'm probably going to be seeing that now. <laughs> the one thing I noticed watching it again now. Because I haven't seen this movie in a long time. There were a couple of changes that jumped out at me. One of the things was the scene where she blows up the supply depot that the careers have set up. Yes. They play that very differently in the movie. In the book, she goes there and she has her plan. And she needs to cut through this bag of apples to set off all the explosions. And she sort of figures out, okay, I need to saw through this bag, but I can't go up there with a knife. I need to shoot arrows at it. So she's calculating in her head, well, I could shoot one arrow to start the tear and shoot one arrow to extend it. And I think by the third arrow, I'll have it cut enough so that it'll all collapse. Whereas in the movie, they depict it like she misses with the first arrow. And that's why all the apples don't come tumbling out immediately. Right, they hit in different places. One of yeah. them hits almost at the rope, holding it up, and then the second one slices through the bag. Well, in in the book, they depict that differently. In the book, it's depicted as she's basically like using multiple arrows to saw through the bag. M- multiple arrows from a very small supply, as well. That's that's another thing. They do. well, obviously, they go into a lot more detail of everything in the book because it's a three hundred some odd page book versus a two hour movie. And there's a lot of Katniss internal monologues. She has time to think about things. But that is one of the things they do in the book is Katniss always keeps track of how many arrows she has. I believe she gets 12 initially when she steals the arrows from the dead girl from District 1. And she keeps track throughout the book how many she's used, how many she has left. And it becomes an issue later in the book when Peeta is attacked as they're climbing up on top of the cornucopia at the end. And she puts a tourniquet on his leg to stop him from bleeding to death. And so then at the very end, where Cato is still alive and being slowly torn apart by these mutations, and he begs them to kill him to finally end it, she has to take the arrow out of Peta's tourniquet in order to kill Cato. That obviously is not an issue in the movie. A, because she has a lot more arrows and doesn't really keep track of them. And B, they don't really depict... Peter's leg injury is being that bad at the end. Well, it's really not that bad because I understand that in the books he does lose his leg. He does because she has a tourniquet on it for 12 hours to keep him from bleeding to death. Right. As he's climbing up, his leg gets mauled by those wolf mutations that in the movie are bad CGI pit bulls. But as he's climbing up on top of the cornucopia, his leg gets mauled and Katniss puts a tourniquet on it to keep him from bleeding to death. And he has a tourniquet on it all night. Until finally in the morning when they kill Kato. And then they don't end the games because they changed the rule back. This whole time, he, they've taken the tourniquet off. So he's bleeding heavily from his leg. And that also introduces a bit of urgency to the final scene. Where he says, you know, go ahead, kill me. You can go home. And she says, no, I won't kill you. And he says, well, fine, I'll bleed to death in like ten minutes. Ah. And so that introduces a note of urgency when, when she, where she is frantically thinking, what can we do, what can we do, what can we do? And then she pulls out that handful of berries. It describes it as the hovercraft is picking them up out of the arena and blood is just pouring out of his leg 
as they're being drawn up into the hovercraft. And then there's a whole scene in the hovercraft where doctors take him away and start operating on him immediately to try to save his life from the blood loss. And she is still sort of in survival mode from the arena and she sees all these people dragging him away and she starts like fighting with the barrier between the medical bay and where she is. She starts like fighting with the barrier trying to get through because these people are, are abducting PETA. Which is another scene where she has a genuine reaction that is not calculated for a show. And how often does she have genuine emotions in life? Not that often. <laughs> so the, that's a whole thing where eventually Peter loses his leg and he has, he has a prosthetic for the rest of the series that is also erased in the movies. So in addition to erasing three out of the four main characters who are not white, they also erased Peter's disability. That is uh, one other thing that, that I wanted to ask. Do you think the decision to save Peta's leg was just without much thought, just, you know, what, you know, why would we have a person with a disability in the rest of the movies? Or was it because they didn't have any budget and they didn't want to do a Lieutenant Dan CGI job on his leg? Or what do you think the motivation was there? They wouldn't have had to do CGI because he's wearing pants. The entire rest of the movie, she, he's wearing pants. Katniss doesn't even find out until like two days later. Like, he's walking with a cane, but she doesn't even notice the prosthetic, because he's walking with the cane, and she just thinks, oh, his leg is hurt. She doesn't find out until, like, two days later. So they could have easily done that without CGI. They just show him standing in pants and limping. So could- and, then they, and then they show a scene where, like, he pulls up his pant leg, but you don't have to show him. You just show the calf, and you pull up the pant leg. You don't have to have a person there. You just put a prosthetic leg and a pant leg and pull up the pant leg and show the prosthetic. You don't need to do CGI. So it could have been as easy as, like, Luke at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, where he gets his hand cut off and then, like, hides it under his arm for a while, and then in the last scene he has a hand again. Basically. I think the decision... I haven't read this. There's probably stuff online where they talked to Gary Ross or one of the other screenwriters and why they made the decision. I I haven't read any of that, so I'm just speculating off the top of my head. I imagine the decision... A, partly comes because they just downplayed everything about PETA in that first movie. Like, like they don't even mention... Like, they, they have the one mention that he lifts heavy bags of flour. But there's no mention made of his family in the bakery. There's barely any mention of his history with Katniss. There's a lot of his personality is stripped out. I think he makes, like, one joke in the entire movie. Whereas in the book, he is sort of, like, cracking jokes all the time. Yeah, that might be another reason that I just totally wasn't feeling any of the love story, because he is yeah. almost a non-entity. A lot of his personality is, is doesn't make it into the movie, and so the leg could just be part of that. I think the opinion of Gary Ross and maybe some of the other people working on the adaptation was basically, this is a movie about Katniss, we don't need to spend time on PETA. I think that was sort of part of their motivation, that's why so much of PETA never makes it out of the book. Right, including well, his prosthetic leg. Right. Well, I mean, she is the she is the protagonist, but it's okay to have other characters too. I don't know if their thought process included we don't want to have to deal with him having a prosthetic in the later movies. Again, maybe there's interviews online where they talk about this. I, if they are, I haven't read them, so I don't know if that went into their thinking. It is mentioned several times in the later books the fact that he has this prosthetic leg, mm-hmm. and obviously it's like a futuristic sci-fi prosthetic. So it, you know. Or, or maybe even a capital prosthetic, all flowery and everything. But it is mentioned several times. It, it's mentioned in the second book a couple of times that he's, he's still sort of not 100% comfortable on it. 
You know, there's a time he slips in the snow because of his prosthetic. And it's mentioned later in in the second book when he has to go running somewhere. It's mentioned, well, I can run pretty good on my prosthetic. I'll be fine. So it it is, you know, it's not just totally forgotten. It is mentioned a few times in the later books. But yeah, that depiction didn't make it into the movies. Were there any other changes you wanted to hit on? One other big change that I noticed, and it really struck me when we were watching it last night, and you probably remember my reaction when I realized it, because I had forgotten they cut this from the movie. There's a scene in the movie where they announce the feast, and he tries to convince her not to go to the feast, because he doesn't want her to die. And she eventually agrees, okay, I won't go to the feast. And then he falls asleep, and then she goes to the feast. Right. In the book, that is a whole thing. He tries to get her not to go to the feast, and she eventually, you know, begrudgingly says, Okay, fine, I don't want to argue about it anymore. And then Hamish sends a sponsor gift. And the sponsor gift he sends is a vial of sleep syrup. So she goes and collects some, like, berries from a bush nearby and mashes it up with the sleep syrup and feeds it to Peta to knock him out for 12 hours. And then she sneaks off to go to the feast. So it's this whole betrayal of trust thing between them. Hmm. Where, she, where Hamish sends her this sponsor gift specifically so that she can knock him out. And then he can't object to her going to the feast to get his medicine. And this is another, from your original argument, that the reason that Katniss is doing all of this is to try to save herself. And she thinks playing up the lover's storyline will do that. And... Hamish's motivation you don't really know because you know you only see him from Katniss's perspective you don't see him at all while she's in the arena but the sleeping syrup does indicate that for, on both of their parts a genuine desire to save Peta as well because she could have just not almost been killed at the feast you know if she was just trying to save herself she could have said okay Peta if you don't want me to go I won't go let him die and then she doesn't have to almost die at the feast and the same thing on Hamish's behalf, you know, if he is just trying to save one of his tributes, he could save that sponsor money and send Katniss something she needs rather than sending her the tool to knock Peta out and then go risk her life. Yeah, but that is one of the few uh, real human reactions that there are in the movie. I noticed as well earlier during the interviews with Caesar Flickerman. Uh, Katniss was the only one who was stuttering and was had stage fright. And she was the only one, seemingly, who was reacting with as much terror as the situation demanded. The only one they showed. The only one they showed, yeah. Because they only showed, I think... They, they showed clip, little clips of most of them. No, they didn't. They showed little clips of like three or four of them. Oh, right. There were like a couple dozen, weren't there? Yeah. Alright. And so, like, they showed like... Five seconds out of a three-minute interview, so they showed the five seconds where they weren't stuttering and stumbling. Yeah, but... And I, also, most of the people they showed, they sort of skimmed over this quickly in the movie, so I don't know if you caught it. Most of the people they showed were from what they call the career districts, where yeah. they actually train to be in the Hunger Games and want to be in the Hunger Games, and so they're prepared for this, and they're not scared shitless like the kids from most of the other districts. The one, the ones where they do prepare someone and then have them volunteer, which is why it's so different that someone volunteered from out in District 12. Yes. Um, but that, that seemed unique to me, in terms of what they showed, at least. Uh, that she was as horrified as a person ought to be, uh, mm. and... 
having some humanity as far as trying to save PETA 2 is another one of those genuine reactions. And maybe a genuine reaction by Hamish too, whose most genuine human reaction, it seems, to most of his life is to drink for the rest of his life. Yeah, well... <laughs> I don't know if you want to get into that now or get into it more when we talk about the second movie. Sure, yes. There's a there's a lot in the second book that sort of explains Hamish that doesn't make it into the second movie. Oh, cool, cool. Now, I want to I want to wrap up the first movie because we're going to move on to the, to the second movie soon. Uh, but first, hey kids, it's grammar time! I just want to point out something that I have to give credit to another podcast for. I think it's interesting to compare the grammatical construction of the title, The Hunger Games, to other titles that could have been structured the same way but weren't. There's a difference in connotation between The Hunger Games and The Games of Hunger in somewhat the same way as there would be between Game of Thrones and The Throne Game, which sounds like a medieval version of musical chairs. There might, there might not be a lot of deep analysis to do on this, but I just thought it was I just thought it was fun and I just wanted to point it out. What do you think? Do you want to mention the podcast you're crediting that to yet? I do I do have to credit uh, another podcast that I listen to for this. It's the uh, Overthinking It podcast, the episode titled Academy of Police. That was my favorite example actually. The Police Academy versus Academy of Police. I like the example of Game of Thrones versus the Throne Game. I think that sort of illustrates the idea better. I don't. I'm not sure it works as well with the Hunger Games versus the Games of Hunger. I think it just sort of because the Hunger Games are actual games. You know, like you couldn't say that like the Olympic Games versus the Games of Olympic. That wouldn't work as well. Yeah. So, I don't think that comparison between grammatical constructions works as well in this context. Right, well, it's, it's, mainly, uh, it's mainly just a funny thing to point out, I thought. Well, it's fun to say Academy of Police. It is very fun to say Academy of Police. And with that, listeners, I think we will hit a break and watch the second Hunger Games movie and come back to you very soon with The Hunger Games Part 2 just when you thought it was safe to go back in the Hunger Games. Nobody needs me. I do. I need you. Welcome back, and we are talking about The Hunger Games Part 2, Catching Fire. Scott, what do you think about this as an actual movie? Can you judge it as an actual movie apart from all the fandom stuff? I can't, because I know the story from the book. So if the movie completely fails at telling the story, I wouldn't be able to tell. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to rope you into watching these, is so that I could get your judgment on how they work as movies without having foreknowledge of the story it's supposed to be trying to tell. Okay, well, consider me roped at this point. <laughs> um, in general, I'd say this is a much, much more successful movie than the first one. 
it was a lot more clear. <laughs> I understood what was going on a lot more. The aesthetics of it were a little more unified. It had a budget this time. That was nice. Yes, that was apparent. <laughs> Uh, the fire effects were much better. All the effects were much better. There were a lot more effects, but not overwhelming. It's just that now they can actually depict all the stuff they're trying to. One can only imagine what those mutations from the end of the first movie would have looked like on a budget like the second movie. Yeah, I was wondering if they were going to try that again. <laughs> it has been an often wished for thing in fandom for all the people involved in making movies 2, 3, and 4 to go back and remake movie 1. Oh, I just meant, like, having those mutations in the second movie or whatever. Oh, no. They didn't change anything that big. in The, se the second movie is a much more faithful adaptation. Whether that automatically makes it a more successful adaptation, I think, is for individuals to judge. But the second movie is a much more faithful adaptation. It makes fewer divergences from the story of the book. There's obviously a lot of the second book it leaves out of the movie because they just can't cram it all in there, but right. it doesn't diverge from the book as much as the first movie does from the first book. Which is actually something you commented on even without having read either book when you mentioned that, wow, Peta has a character in the second movie. Oh yeah, he, to he totally does. He, he was like completely bland in the first one. I had no sense of him. And in the second one... Most of his new character is just that he's a little sarcastic. Yeah, he's kind of snarky, kind of funny. Yeah, but at least his only character note is not just that he's hanging on to Katniss. Yes. He actually has some characterization in the second movie. Yeah, he relates to the other characters a little. That is handled a lot better, while not shortchanging any of the other parts of the movie. Like, the, uh, the writing's a little more efficient. Plus he also, I think part of that, to an extent, is that he gets a little more to do in the second movie. I mean, in the first movie, it really is, he's not in the movie other, and I'm referring to the book equally in this case. He's not in the story until he gets reaped. And then his entire existence is how it relates to Katniss and her experience in the games. And then the story basically ends once they get out of the games. Or once they get out of the capital, at least. In the second movie and the, and, and the second book, you get to see a lot more of him. You see him interacting with Haymitch at home. You see him helping them treat Gale after he gets whipped. You see him interacting with people other than Katniss in settings other than in the games, which you don't really get to see in the first book. Yeah, yeah, d definitely. He's involved a little more, even though he still spends a healthy percentage of the movie injured. Well... Although I guess they all do, right? Yeah. It's 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 kind of it's kind of the way it goes when the whole movie is centered around murdering children. They don't even have his prosthetic leg in the movie. He can't be that injured. Although yeah, he still well. manages to slip and fall when they try to stand in the snow, even though he doesn't have a prosthetic leg that he's not a hundred percent stable on yet. Yeah, that made no sense. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, you can write it off easily enough as you know, hey, it's snow and they slipped. But as like a note in a in in a movie, that was just kind of random. Well, that is an instance where they tried to stay faithful to the second book, even though the foundations of it were not included in the first movie. One other thing I thought this movie did a lot better than the others was to try to duplicate some of the psychological horror that they build into the game. In the first one, you have to do a lot of inference on your own about the intimate terror of being put in this arena and having to bash a bunch of tweens' heads in. But in this one, I really liked the scene with uh, those birds. Uh, the Jabberjays, mm -hmm. I think. 
you know, screaming like everyone's loved ones and and chasing Katniss, like all, this swarm of birds screaming like her sister. That, I think, really, really hit on some of the terror that they're building into these things. I was very curious how that scene would work for you, because the movies did not include the explanation of what a Jabberjay is and what it does, and how, you know, the whole thing about Jabberjays and Mockingjays and where they came from and what do they do was completely left out of the movie, so I was curious to see how well that scene would work for you. Well, they left out some of the background, I guess, but we've seen the Capitol pull out enough you know, whiz-bang technology that I just figure, yeah, it's another species they have. So you, so there was enough there where you could just sort of, oh, they have birds that play back recordings or something like that. Sure. That, that was clear enough. You didn't need all the backstory from the book in order to understand that part of the story. I appreciate that that backstory is there because I like backstories for things, but I didn't need it in that instant. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, it, re- it really got across the psychological note without having to delve into into that whole background. Also, while we're contrasting to the to the first movie, uh, the camera is still a little shaky, but it's not over the top. Yeah, they still do occasionally try to replicate the first person perspective by like fading the camera out. Or or shaking it a little when she when she's panicked, so it's hard for you to see what's going on. They do that a little bit, but for the rest of the time, they mostly keep things fairly stable. This movie is a lot more conventionally directed and cinematographed. Is that a word? <laughs> I don't know the past tense verb form of cinematography. You're the grammarian. <laughs> cinematography isn't typically a verb. Is this grammar time again? <laughs> You're the English major. Help me out here. Yeah, great. So the and and also the score. The first movie has a the score. Of the first movie is very very spare. Part of that is because they switched composers not long before it came out, and the new composer James Newton Howard didn't have a whole lot of time to score the first movie. So it's very spare with the music, which sort of contributes a bit to like the ambiance of the whole thing, but. The second movie has a much more traditional score with a more traditional amount of music. And it's also more traditionally directed where the camera sits rather still unless there's some particular reason for it not to. Yeah, they also use some of the more traditional filmmaking methods when depicting Katniss's PTSD. Thinking particularly of the scene at the beginning of the movie where she sees one of the tributes from the last movie in the woods. That sort of substitution just seeing the actor in a weird place has got to be like a a traditional technique but also i think in other ways they got katniss's ptsd pretty well with her shutting down and her aggressive indifference aggressive indifference to what what are you talking about well i mean like a psyche that's calloused over because she's grown up with so much trauma and so much responsibility and then had this experience in the first movie heaped on that where she had a lot of fresh pain and fresh stress and now it's been a little while since the first movie that's sort of ossified a little bit into like a day-to-day experience of of ptsd or something close to it with the visions, with the nightmares, with the anxiety to an extent to which she reacts by shutting down. Okay. I think that is one bit of characterization the movies do a particularly good job on, is trying to portray Katniss's PTSD. Although I actually think the third movie does a better job than the second one. There are a lot of things that I'm going to be looking for in in the third movie as far as characterization, because there are 
is a fair bit of characterization shift right at the end of this movie. Um, Go on. <laughs> well, there there is of course um, Plutarch, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, who, as introduced, seems like almost a generically devious guy. I mean, he's not that generic because he's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. But Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is incredibly good in any role you could possibly imagine him in. Philip Seymour Hoffman as Katniss. Would work. You could make it work. Put a wig on him. Philip C. I do not believe there is a role that Philip Seymour Hoffman would not be the perfect fit for. Philip Seymour Hoffman as Batman. You in, know what? In like that, a Dark Knight Returns sort of milieu? That yeah, would work. Yeah, you know what? That could work. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman, whose back has been broken for 15 years, has got to come back. Yeah. And older, embittered, coming out of retirement because these criminals just won't stay wherever Batman put them 20 years ago. Yeah, like all stubbly and stuff. Okay, yeah, you got me there. Yeah, there was a lot revealed about him right at the end of the movie. Right at the end of the movie, yeah. Because as he's introduced, he's just another game maker. He's conspiring with President Snow. He has these conference scenes with President Snow, which in retrospect, you can see the stuff about, you know, I agree that she must die. But it must be at the right time, and in the right way. I got that quote completely wrong, but I get every quote completely wrong. It's um, your thing. Sure. Uh, but the point is that he keeps putting off her death. The, yes, exactly. The point is that, that he puts off her death and convinces President Snow to put off her death. President Snow, who, by the way, appears to have no presidential duties other than watching reality TV. This only happens once a year, right? So is this just his yearly vacation? Like, there's got to be organizational responsibilities as a dictator, right? You got to dictate stuff. You can't have other people do every single thing. You, you got to dictate if you're a dictator. Do you know what it sort of reminds me of? What's that? All the time he spends watching screens of the Victory Tour, or watching screens of what happened in the riot, or watching screens of what's going on in the games. It is sort of similar to backstage segments on WWE. Where, like, Vince or H or whoever's sort of standing in front of a television monitor. Yes, yes. <laughs> watching their own television show. Yes. Because he is watching, like, live news coverage. He's basically watching, you know, Pan Am CNN. Yeah. <laughs> when he's not watching the Hungry Game channel. Uh, would, like, so this only happens once a year, right? So is this just his vacation time? He takes a week to watch his favorite telenovela? I do not know. But, anyway... So, all the Philip Seymour Hoffman scenes, when he's dancing with Katniss at their reception, whatever that was, all the scenes with President Snow, you can read them in a completely different way in retrospect after the end of the movie, when it's shockingly revealed that he's in on the revolution that everyone but Katniss is on, apparently, but we're going to get to that in a minute. Okay. As introduced, he's just another guy, he's making the games, he's conspiring with the president, he is reiterating some of the things that they suggested in the first movie as far as soft control and hard control of the population. The games are built around soft control, uh, about distraction and having people invest their energy and hopes and dreams and whatever in this elaborate fiction that they're presenting on this TV show versus the hard control of actually sending the peacekeepers in and having them flog and beat people all the time. And so there's tension between the, those two methods of social control and 
the way you initially read Philip Seymour Hoffman's character when he's discussing these things with President Snow is in trying to harmonize those two methods and make them work together. What do you think about the way that those two kind of work against and in harmony with each other in the movie? Well, I'm not sure they do work in the movie. And of course, that's later revealed because he's trying to sabotage everything. So no wonder it doesn't really work. I guess there's a theory that you can just beat people into submission, but all they ever seem to do in the movie is beat people until they get angry. That is the classic mistake of many dictatorships. So it never really seems to work for them. And that's why they keep having to revise the plan and keep having more scenes with Donald Sutherland and Philip Seymour Hoffman, which, you know, the book is first-person Katniss. None of these things actually exist, but I'm not exactly going to object to a lot of scenes with Donald Sutherland and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, that's, that's a very good combination. These movies have some remarkably good casting. Yeah, definitely. Even Woody Harrelson is, is really good in this movie. Did I get his name right? You did, remarkably. Thank you. I'll remark on it. Thank you. Really, the ideal they're sort of shooting for is what they've supposedly had for the past 74 years. Where, you know, people are just sort of downtrodden and scraping and struggling, so focused on getting a meal for the end of the day that they don't have time to get together and foment a new revolution. And somehow, Katniss is on fire, and she buried ruined flowers, and she saved PETA, and now everyone wants to have a revolution. And there's not really anything that Plutarch and Snow managed to do about it. I mean, they try to contain it, but they don't really contain it. Yeah, I suppose it's that moment of cooperation between districts in the game that's meant to make them kill each other that kind of foments this populist notion that we can work together and... We don't have to all be set against each other and fight for the scraps left over by the capital. Well, that's basically the theme that Hamish is trying to get across in the movie. Remember who the real enemy is. Yeah, yeah. So, we see at the end of the movie, and it, it is foreshadowed throughout the movie, I mean, the oncoming revolution. I mean, seeing from Katniss's perspective, it must have been a lot more jarring in the book. From Katniss's perspective, she's fighting and fighting and fighting, and then suddenly she's airlifted out and the revolution's beginning. Whereas, you can think about some of the earlier scenes. I mean, there's the scene with Gale, who seemed immediately ready to man the barricades and start the revolution midway through the movie. Yes. Gale is very much the hot-headed revolutionary character of the main characters. Right, he, he's immediately on board, whereas Katniss just wants some fleeting moment where she's free from fear. Yes. Katniss is very much focused on trying to protect herself and her loved ones, whereas Gale is more of an idealistic, storm the Bastille kind of guy. You can argue, and I, Katniss actually argues this, not as much. She mentions it a little bit in the movie, I think. But Katniss does sort of say this in the book, at least in her internal monologue, if not to someone else, that the reason Gale is able to be like that is because he hasn't been in the games. You know, right. he had to work in the mine, his father died, he had to hunt and scrape and struggle to feed his family, but he's never had 23 other people in an arena trying to kill him. He hasn't had the president personally visit his house to threaten to kill the people he cares about. Yeah, exactly. He's not that important. So that's why 
from Katniss's perspective, that's one reason why he can still be hot-headed, revolutionary, storm the Bastille guy, whereas she's just trying to keep her family from being slaughtered. Gale is ready to man the barricades. He's ready to go out and fight. Meanwhile, all of Katniss's other allies, Hamish and Philip Seymour Hoffman, it turns out, and even Effie a little bit, everyone is mythologizing her. She's become this pop culture figure, and on the one side, she's Caesar Flickerman's girl on fire. She's this figure of adoration as the victor and as this dazzling celebrity figure. And on the other hand, she's the Mockingjay. She's this figure of rebellion. She's graffiti spray-painted on the tunnel. She is the hand gesture that gets you killed. Yeah. Again, something else they don't really explain the backstory of, but it still sort of works because you can see what it means. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Going toward this fight between these two mythologies in tension, they want to use the Mockingjay figure, the Mockingjay symbolism, to invalidate the institution of the games entirely. They present it during Caesar's interviews with the tributes. They have some of them screaming at the crowd and, and talking about how horrifying it is to send them back into the games in a really explicit way that you couldn't have had before, and it seemed kind of jarring to me to have it then. But again, it's something that makes sense in retrospect when they, you know, dash off a line at the end. Yeah, half the tributes were in on it. Well, here's the thing about that. Most of those tribute interviews are pretty close to the way they are in the book. Johanna's interview is completely not at all what she actually does in the book. Johanna screaming and cursing at the crowd and how dare you try to kill me again. That fits her characterization later when they're not on screen putting on a show. But in the book, she gives her interview and it says in the book, she asks if something can't be done because surely the creators of the Quarter Quell could never have anticipated such love forming between the victors and the capital. Nobody could be so cruel as to sever such a deep bond. And in the movie, she's screaming, How dare you send me into the games, you fucking assholes! People love that scene, because it does sort of fit the later Johanna's characterization, and very much fits her fan-in characterization. But I hate that change, because it's such a stark change from the book, where they're all still very conscious of putting on a show and doing what will persuade people to their side. Yeah, they usually present everyone as so horrified by the consequences of any um, yes. disobedience. Everyone's very subtle and very smart about it. The District 1 tributes are like, you know, well, we love you guys in the capital, and we know you love us, and it's it's been so great getting to know you, but, you know, now we're going to have to die. Very subtly turning people, you know... Finnick O'Dare, the heartthrob of the capital, reads a poem to his one true love. And every single person in the audience thinks it's them. Mm. The with Beatty from District 3 starts talking about, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure this is legal. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, could this really be legal? You know, just being kind of subtle about it, not screaming fuck you at the crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did really like his character, by the way. 
I appreciated having some of the older characters in there, not not just the uh, teens and tweens. Yeah, there's no more tweens. Just a uh, 17-year-old, 22-year-old Jennifer Lawrence. Right, right. Well, of course. <laughs> but uh, have, having him and Madge, uh, I really liked having there, too. I thought... Mags. Sorry. Madge didn't make it into the movie. Uh, the only reason you've heard of Madge is because I complained that she's not in the movie. Uh, sorry, I was thinking of Madge Sinclair. Um... <laughs> Would not have been bad cast as Madge. Sure. <laughs> Mags. Damn it! I got you! Go back to talking about Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> he was great in this movie. Anyway. <laughs> One aspect of this kind of competing mythology story that is pretty problematic is the fact that Katniss has no agency in any of it. No. Her agency is actively stomped down by the Capitol, the way they actively stomp down everyone's agency in the nation. And it's a little more subtly and implicitly stomped down by the incipient revolution. Because they seem to just be assuming that once they say, hey, we're starting a revolution, she's going to be all gung-ho about it. Because she has as much reason to hate Snow and the government and the games as any of them. And I realize that there are two more movies coming, so we'll probably get a little more deep into that. I was about to say, I could not be happier that you're making that point, because that's exactly what the last book is about. Cool. The last book is about how... The resistance and the revolution dehumanizes and takes advantage and tries to mold her to their ends just as much as the Capitol did in the first two books. Yeah, I mean, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's responsibility in this is to create the game, is to create this story that'll distract people and keep them from fomenting a revolution. And then what he does with Katniss is create a story and give people a certain ideologically bent tale to get emotionally invested in and join in to what the story is trying to get them to do. It's just that now it's the opposite thing to what he was doing before. Yes, that is exactly what happens in the third movie and third book. Well, all right. We'll talk about that more after we see the third movie. But that is exactly what's coming up. That's why I say, we discussed this when we were talking about the first movie, that line you said, you can't make a war movie without glorifying war. That's why I say Mockingjay, if done right, is that movie and is that book because they basically show both sides as being just as bad. One of them is currently oppressing everyone and one of them may be better if they come to power, but the means they're using to come to power aren't really any better so far. Well, I hope that that comes off well and I hope that that is really hammered home in the last movie because I think that could be a really, not sneaky, but I'm not sure what word I mean other than sneaky, uh, use of the incredible commercial success that these movies have had. Well, the, the incredible commercial success these movies have had is a stark, stark contrast to the actual message contained within the story. And the Lionsgate marketing firm, whoever the people are at Lionsgate marketing that, like, work out, hey, let's do a line of couture fashion themed after our Hunger Games movies. Let's do a line of makeup themed after our Hunger Games movies. Yeah. The, the, the Lionsgate marketing people and a lot of their marketing campaign and a lot of their tie-in campaigns 
are exactly the sort of thing that the story of the Hunger Games trilogy condemns. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's any glitzy marketing campaign you're going to have is probably going to concentrate on the capital. I mean, yes. especially if you're doing makeup and, and couture fashion and any of that, it's going to be the capital and it's going to be implicitly glorifying the capital, which is somewhat beside the point. It's somewhat contra the point. Sure. It misses the point. Yeah, yeah. As does the planned Hunger Games theme park they're trying to build. Is that actually happening? Because I have seen stories about that being started and cancelled and started and cancelled so many times. And it is just such an obviously horrible idea. Okay, hold on. I'm looking it up. Here is a story from November 4th, 2015. Hunger Games theme park coming to Atlanta. That's where they did a lot of the filming for this movie, right? Yeah, for the last three movies, they did a lot of filming in Atlanta. I just can't imagine any, like, full-scale Hunger Games theme park to be anything other than, you know, hey, here's the Hunger Games arena, pretend to bash your little brother's head in. This is a story from last April. There's going to be a Hunger Games theme park opening in October 2016 in Dubai. In Dubai? Yes. Alright, well, moving on. <laughs> the marketing really embraces the decadence of the capital, as you said. Um, there, There is, I think, also an interesting confluence there because the capital is obviously like Rome. Everyone has Roman names. They have chariots at the uh, parade of tributes. They have all of these Roman motifs. It's a little bit like the opening parade of the Olympics meets Roman gladiatorial games meets the running man, right? There's another duo I'd like to see. We can have Caesar Flickerman with Matt Lauer at the Olympics. We can also have Caesar Flickerman with Richard Dawson from the running man. Well, in this movie, Caesar had the mic for it. As yes, you, as you pointed out. Yes, yes. There was, there was, the, there was the um the video snippet of Peta proposing to Katniss with Caesar right there, grinning and mugging for the camera with the long, uh, like nineteen seventies game show mic. Yes. So I mean, obviously, it's supposed to be constructed as a critique of these things, a, a critique of of reality TV. You know, with the evil, devious dictator obs obsessed, apparently, with what goes on on this reality TV show. Of the decadence uh, that is the reputation and the uh, cultural conception of mid-to-late-era Rome. The Panem et Circensis era. Huh? When at the same time, there's a parallel strain of the Roman virtues... Uh, stoicism, mainly. Katniss is often, when she's not collapsing under the weight of anxiety and drama, she's often a very stoic person. So there's this competing sense of the decadence of Rome and the virtue of Rome that really carries through Western cultures as well. Because, of course, there's the sense that all of Western culture, in a way, descended from Rome. So there's kind of a, a line that people trace back there while kind of posturing and rejecting the sort of decadence. Or, 
alternatively indulging in it when you have the resources and the prestige and the privilege in order to do so. Well, there's obviously the Rome parallels with the deathmatch gladiatorial games and the Roman names for everyone from the capital and from District 2. But there's also a strong parallel to draw when you have a central, very rich society that draws resources and manufactured goods from the surrounding areas and pays the workers that produces them starvation wages. Yes, in that, for sure. In that sense, the capital is the United States. Yeah, there's, there's a sense of... Um... And, you know, the people in District 8 are people in Malaysia and China putting together sneakers for 10 cents a day. Right, there's a sense of uh, sucking everyone's production and, and resources like a vampire. Yes. Living luxuriously while benefiting from the hard work of people who are earning starvation wages in other locations. Mm -hmm. In that respect, the United States is essentially the capital. Yeah, that is a little harsh but fair, I think I'd say. Uh, do you want to move on to the love story? Well, I'm, v I'm very curious to get your thoughts on the love story. Because I already know, you know, I've read the books, I already know the whole thing. And I've gotten a lot more of the story because I've read the books rather than just seeing the movie. So I'm curious to get what your perspective is on the love story at this point. How is it working? Does it make sense to you? What do you think? I hate love triangles. I just I just hate them. They're boring to me. They're not often done well, I think. There are so many, in so many forms of media, that I think I'm just done with the love triangle, personally. And so I wasn't going in with a mindset to really kind of forgive some of the ways that they bang on it in this movie. I've never encountered anyone that genuinely likes love triangles, especially this love triangle. And maybe it's just the fandom circles that I encounter. The really interesting thing when you make that comment is that when Suzanne Collins originally wrote the books, there was a lot less love triangle. There's actually an interview online where her editor talks about the process of producing the trilogy. And the editor says, yeah, Suzanne was really more focused on the war story. I had to ask her for more love triangle. So there's a lot of fandom conjecture about exactly how much of a love triangle was originally supposed to be in the story. There are folks who hate the love triangle but don't want to criticize the author of these books that they otherwise love. And they say, oh, the publisher forced her to include a love triangle. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I don't know how much was originally her idea and how much was the idea of the editor or the publisher. I haven't seen an original source on that. But there was this interview with her editor where she does say, you know, Suzanne was focused on the war story. I asked her for more love triangle. And then when Lionsgate came into the picture to adapt the books into movies, Lionsgate wanted to emulate the success of the Twilight movies. And so they wanted to add in more love triangle. That's why there's all these extra shots of Gale back home during the first movie, when in the first book he doesn't appear after the reaping. That's why before the games in this movie, there's that goodbye scene in the meadow between Gale and Katniss that doesn't happen in the book. Yeah, it's just... it's not anything that I'm gonna get into. I mean, really, the solution to a love triangle is either polyamory or... Katniss telling the both of them to, you know, just telling them off. Because they're both kind of uh, inferior males. But 
Uh, maybe that'll change now that Pete is getting characterization. Well, forgetting about the love triangle aspect of it, what's your opinion of the development of the Katniss and Peta love story? Well, I can't really decide to read it as a cynical ploy on her part anymore, which makes me a little sad. Because I, I, I like a good, strong misreading. But there, there are too many points where she acts warmly toward him without maybe needing to for the cameras, you know? At the same time, she uses her victor privilege to save one person from flogging, and it's Gale. Yeah. Uh, when I first saw the trailer, I'm not sure if the trailer showed that that was Gale. I just thought she was saving some rando, and I really like that idea better. That that's just her sense of humanity. It's not, no, don't beat this guy who's my friend and maybe love interest. It's her saying, no, don't beat this human being. That would have been a way to go. The strong implication in the book is that Gale is targeted for that flogging because he's Katniss's friend. Because this whole thing is aimed at fucking with Katniss. Oh, sure. That's around the time that Snow visits her and, and shows her the video that they recorded of them together, right? Well, it's, it's, sh it's shortly after they get back from the tour when all that happens. Right, right, right. It doesn't happen the way it does in the movie. He doesn't, like, decide to attack a peacekeeper. Oh, yeah, because he, he is that ready to start the revolution. Yeah, that's, the, e that's even beyond his book level of hot-headed rebel storm the Bastille guy. Who was the one... I don't remember which character was which in Les Mis. Is he Marius? I have never seen Les Mis. Okay. I cannot help. Uh, if anyone's listened this far, let us know. Send us an email. What's the show email? Uh, uh, we gotta make, we got to make an email for the podcast. We'll let you know during the part three discussion. Oh, good lord. Okay. <laughs> but uh, the reason I was curious is because watching it back, she sort of... I mean, at the beginning of the movie, they don't really... Katniss and Peter don't really have a relationship. And then Peter tries to sort of engender a rapprochement. You know, let's try to be friends. Let's, you know... Yeah, Peta isn't really... He's not really going for the gold. He just wants to make it look good for the time that they have to make it look good. I'm just saying that the way that a relationship develops throughout the movie, where at the beginning they're very much estranged yeah. after the events of the first movie, and then he sort of tries to reconcile, like, you know, hey... We're stuck in this together. We can't. We can't be strangers like this. Let's always try to be friends. And and, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the movie, she shows up at Hamish's house and says, "Please let me die so Peter can live." Yeah. And from my perspective, watching it in the movie, without the development of the relationship in the book, without the added knowledge of Katniss's thoughts that's in the book, that seemed to come about sort of suddenly in the movie. It was very sudden. Yeah. But I think to the extent that they laid the groundwork for that, it was just in that scene on the train where he just reveals that he has a lot of the same trauma that she does. You know, she wakes up from her nightmare and he says, yeah, I get those too. And that's just, it's a little moment between them. And I appreciate it for being somewhat of a little moment. It wasn't a big declaration of, oh, we've both had this done to us. We have all this in common. It's just, yeah, I get those too. Obviously, that's something that's meant to very quickly get across a point that's sort of expanded upon in the, in the book. But you've basically got the gist of it correct. That's part of what I was talking about earlier, is that they have this shared experience. They were in the arena together. They fought in the games together. They both have the mental scars that come from that. And that is something that she can never share with Gale. 
the same way that, you know, scrimping and scraping and struggling to feed your family is something that she shares with Gail that she doesn't share with Peta. And I said, what about Nightmares About the Arena? And she said, I think I remember the arena. And he said, well, that's the one thing they've got. <laughs> well, it depends on how far you want to go into the shipping. There is much rending of pixels <laughs> over the fact that even in the movie, where they try to emphasize the love triangle even more than they do in the book, but even in the movie, when Katniss has her PTSD flashback in the woods, she shoves Gale away from her and tries to keep distance between them, whereas when she has her nightmare on the train, she invites Peta into her bed. Yeah, meanwhile, Gale is all jealous. I mean, he's still making snarky remarks. However much time there is between the movies, he's still snarking about this guy she kissed once in a cave. Yeah. Which also doesn't do his character any favors. One of them has to be the jealous side of the love triangle. I just really don't like love triangles. That That's just going to be my comment on, on all this. I'm just sick of them. I mean, they're so played out at this point. Why yeah. does everything have to have a love triangle? Well, I mean... Twilight made a lot of money. And The Hungry Game is making a lot of money. <laughs> but I think there's some development that's concentrated on and expanded upon in the book. They try to cram it into the movie, but there's so much to cram in there that it winds up flying by so quickly that you don't quite get that development from a tentative friendship forming at the beginning of the tour to please let me die so that he can live to the end of the movie where they're like, we're going to overthrow the despotic government. And she's like, I don't care. Where's PETA? Right. There's some development to get from stage one to stage two and three that I think the movie tries to cram in there, but it just sort of runs through too quickly to really let it sink in for the viewer. I suppose there's an extent to which trying to let herself die so that PETA would live is the one thing that she thought she had some control over. That's a stick to an extent. Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, I'm getting back to the whole discussion about her agency, which I know is going to be a running theme, but if that's yes. the one thing that she thought she had a choice about, and then at the end of the movie she learns that, no, oh, that choice was taken away from her too. Also, she thinks maybe that's the best way to stick it to President Snow. That, oh, you know, he's dragging both of them back into the arena to try to kill them, but I'm going to show him because I'm going to get PETA back out of that arena. It's not so much depicted in the movie as in her internal monologue in the book. She also has cripplingly low self-esteem. And so she very much is of the opinion, well, if there's going to be a revolution, PETA is the one the revolution needs. So I'm going to die so that he can get out of the arena. And even in part three, when they make her the face of the revolution, she keeps going around saying, man, if only PETA were here, this revolution would really be jumping. Oh, well, I don't know if I'm looking forward to that part. PETA is so charismatic, and he, and he has such a way with words. He could really get this revolution going. I'm just, you know, I can shoot a bow. I can't really do anything useful. All right, let's try to uh, move on past Catching Fire here. What else would you like to hit about this movie? Oh, uh, what do you think about Effie's characterization in this movie? I know you have oh. some thoughts on that one. Effie. 
in everything that they tried to change in the first movie, and everything that they sort of got wrong in adapting the first movie, everything they changed that they kind of shouldn't have, where they basically dumped Peter's character, they left things out of the first movie such that there are things they could not include in later movies because they were not included in the first movie to set them up. You know, it's kind of like Chekhov's gun where you cut the scene where it's shown on the wall in Act 1. Mm. And and so it doesn't really work. I mean, there, there's a big scene, a part of the developing Katniss and Peeta relationship. There's a big scene during training for the games where it's their last day of training where they're supposed to do interview preparation. And Hamish basically says, you were both in the interviews last year. You know what to do. I don't need to talk to you today. And so they spend the entire day up on the roof of the training center having like a picnic and laying out in the sun. Peter braids flowers into her hair and they take a nap and he wakes her up to watch the sunset. And there's this whole day of the two of them just spending time together up on the roof, which was not included in the Catching Fire movie, partly because, you know, they didn't have time to cram everything in there and also partly because they didn't include the roof in the first movie. There's a whole bit where they go up on the roof and Cinna shows Katniss the roof and then Katniss and Peeta go up there and then a couple days later, right before they go into the arena, they meet up there again because they both can't sleep and they both wind up up there and they have these conversations and none of that's in the first movie. So since the roof isn't in the first movie, it's kind of hard to include it in the second movie. Not to mention that they have a whole new training facility because they have a budget now and they can build new sets. Yes. But out of everything the first movie got wrong, the one thing that was absolutely spot on perfect in the first movie was Effie. Her character, her look, her dress, her makeup, Elizabeth Banks acting in the role, everything was spot on perfect about Effie Trinket in the first movie. And for like the first half of the second one. Effie, in the beginning of the second movie, where she's, you know, all excited to be in the Victor's Village, where her victors live, and oh, you'll get used to the smell. She goes into this giant mansion that's awarded to the winner of the Hunger Games and says, oh, this is nice and quaint. She's been involved in choosing tweens to bash each other's heads in for umpty nine years, but when Katniss mentions, hey, you know, I killed people in the arena, that's the height of impoliteness in Effie's view. Effie is still great through the victory tour. And then, at the second reaping, they take her character off on a tangent where she, like, all of a sudden, after umpty nine years of drawing names of tweens to get their heads bashed in, now she starts realizing murder is bad. Which she doesn't really do in the book. She's, like, kind of sorry that Katniss and Peeta have to go back in, but she never quite makes that leap to, you know, these Hunger Games are kind of bad. That's not part of her characterization in the book, and I don't like when she's portrayed that way, and she's portrayed that way in some parts of fandom stuff and in the movie, obviously, and it just gets worse in later movies. The one note that I had on her was that it seems like she's finally starting to see the horror that she's participating in, which I didn't really have an opinion one way or the other on whether that was a good development for her character, because someone in the movie is going to have to have that realization during the movie, right? It seems like everyone else is in their ideological boxes the whole time, secretly or not. So someone is going to have to have that realization and that conversion, I suppose. Uh, I don't know if she's in on the revolution or whatever, but someone is going to have to have that sort of transition on screen. 
We'll talk about it more after the third movie, I think. Sure. Because all I can really say at this point is that she starts expressing... Like, you saw her. She's, like, fucking teary-eyed at the reaping. She well, because well, now she knows them. Whenever yeah. she whenever she's picking other people, she has no idea who they are. She just goes around and picks names out of baskets. By the way, is she just picking things for District 12? Because she seems to hang out with the District 12 people the whole time they're in the Capitol. Yeah, she's the official escort for the District 12 tributes. Okay, sure. So, she's just going to this place every year and picking a couple names, and she sees them off and then they die because District 12 doesn't win. Yes. So, it's just a revolving door for her. Until now, she actually knows the people. And so, it's something that actually has some significance to it, especially since having all these people going through this revolving door for umpty nine years, finally they have victors! And so that must be a huge thing in her life, and now these people have to be shuffled off to die again. So that I can see being more important to her than any of the other tweens she's seen off to their deaths. It could be. We'll talk about it more after we see the third movie. All right. The third movie is really where she goes off the rails. Okay. One thing I actually think they did a fairly good job of in this movie is showing the individual training assessments that Katniss and Peeta do right before going into the Hunger Games where they're supposed to show off their best skills, except PETA goes in there and paints a picture of Rue, dead, covered in flowers on the floor using the camouflage paints. And Katniss goes in there and displays her new knowledge of knots by making a noose and hanging one of the dummies with Seneca Crane's name painted on it. In the book, they clean everything up before Katniss can get in there so she can't see the picture, but PETA tells everyone about it later. But I thought that was a good way of showing it, just to have it there for Katniss to see, so that the audience can see it as well, rather than just hearing Peter talk about it. In a book, hearing someone talk about, I did this thing, is just as well as hearing the author describe them doing the thing, but in the movie, you want to see it. And so it's nice that we got to see it. Yeah, definitely, because they had to bring back the Rue imagery anyway, because that's an important part of a lot of Katniss's motivation and some of the larger societal stuff around the protests and riots and everything. So that was a nice way to bring it back, and I thought they depicted it pretty well. Well, she actually has a lot of similar feelings in this second part. She mentions in the book that, you know, a lot of these tributes, you know, some of them are in their 20s and 30s, but some of them are really sort of old and frail, like Mags and a couple of other ones, where she says, you know, normally it'd be my instinct to try to protect folks like that, but I have to kill them now. And they include the part where Katniss and Peter are sitting together before the assessments, and she says, Peter, how are we going to kill these people? They go into that a bit in the book and don't show it a lot in the movie, but they do have that comment from Katniss. It's a lot different between, you know, a bunch of scared tweens training to go into the arena versus people that have already done it before, training to go back. They're not scared shitless like the 12 and 13 and 14 year olds are. They're not shutting off from everyone else. They're not all super jocks too, like a lot of the people, like the career people or whatever yeah. from the first movie. You know, they have... Well, there's a, there's a lot more camaraderie among them. Yeah. And, and they mention that in the books because they go into more detail about the training and there's just they're a lot more chummy because a lot of them have known each other for years because they've been mentoring together. Yeah. So there's a lot more camaraderie. They're not as scared as the kids are most years. And so you kind of get to know each other better, which just makes it harder for Katniss, which leads to that bit where she's sitting there and she goes, Peter, how are we going to kill these people? 
Yeah, because the secondary characters are like Mags, who's old and nice, and a couple of adorable nerds. Yeah, I like the fact that they had a couple of nerds in the in the movie. That was nice. We didn't get to see the guy from District 3 in the first movie. The tribute from District 3 in the first movie, District 3 is the technology district, and the boy from 3 in the first movie is the one who thought of the idea of digging up the mines and rewiring them. Oh. He's he's the one that Kato snapped his neck when he came back and found all their supplies blown up. Ah, okay. I also like the, uh, the bit of background they put in about... I don't remember which one of them... Or maybe it was two of them. Uh, one by just hiding out until everyone else died from dehydration or exposure or whatever. Yeah. Because that was one of the notes that I had from the first movie that we didn't get to. I was wondering if there was ever, like, a pacifist victor who didn't kill anyone, just got up in a tree and found water and food and hid out for a while. They do go into a more detail about that in the books where people win in various ways because they describe various arenas. Right. Because you've got Katniss into your monologue. Well... What's the arena going to be? Well, in previous years, I remember they did this one year, and they did this one year, and they did this one year. You know, they did a ruined city where you had to hide out in the ruins. They did a desert where there was no water, and a lot of people died of dehydration, and that wasn't very popular because watching people slowly die of dehydration is not exciting. No, they really wanted to bash each other's brains in. You know, there was an arena where there were no weapons, and so you had to fight with bare hands, and that wasn't very popular. You know, he, she goes through a lot of different items. So there are people that won just by huddling up and outlasting everyone else. There's Beatty who won by hiding and then setting an electrical trap to get his competitors. Annie, the girl that Mags volunteered for. Yeah. She won her games because there was, I think, an earthquake or a dam burst or something like that. They flooded the arena toward the end of her games. And since she's from District 4, the fishing district... She was the best swimmer left, and everyone else drowned before she did, and so she won. Yeah, it's nice to have a little variety in there that they don't really have in the movies. I mean, both of them, they had the forest setting, and then in this one, they had the jungle. It's not all that different. Some of that background is neat. I, I, I like getting into some of the, uh, uh, a little bit of the background. And you can tell, I think that I liked this movie a lot better than the first one because I am kind of getting into a little more of the detail and a little more of the background. Yeah, you didn't make nearly as many snarky comments while watching this one. Oh yeah, sure. I I, I didn't snark about it nearly as much because I was actually enjoying it. Well, there you go. That's an improvement. Sure. You watched the first movie and didn't have any desire to watch any more for two and a half years. So. <laughs> and now here we are, and I actually feel pretty good coming up to the third movie. One detail I did notice is that while the first movie completely erased Peta losing his leg, in this movie they did include Chaff's missing hand. The tribute from District 11, Chaff, is mentioned in the book that he's missing a hand that he lost in his games. And they showed him in this movie, they showed him when he meets Katniss after the parade, they showed his missing hand. And then when all the victors join hands after the interviews, they show Katniss reaching over and grabbing his stump. It's definitely nice to have that in there, at least as a nod to the PETA we don't have. That's the kind of detail that they included in the second movie, whereas none of the major pieces of the character of PETA really made it into the first movie. Right. I mean, watching the first movie again, it wasn't even 100% clear that he actually loved Katniss. That's what I was saying. Uh, is there anything else you want to hit about the second movie, or do you want to move on to the third? One thing I really liked about the second movie, watching again, is the opening scene. There's a line in the book where Katniss is out in the forest 
And there's a line in the book that says, The sun persists in rising, and so I make myself stand. And if you're going to try to show that line in a movie, the opening scene of the movie, I thought, is really, really good. Where she's sort of squatting by the lake, and then the sun rises over the lake, and then she kind of slowly gets up, and the camera follows her as she stands, and then she walks off into the woods. If you're going to try to embody that line of interior monologue in a visual medium like a movie, I thought they did a really good job of attempting that. Alright, that'll do it for Hunger Games Part 2. Come back after the ad break, and we will have the Hunger Games Part 3, Part 1. Who's hungry now? Promotional consideration paid for by the following. What's up, everybody? This is Kevin Kelly. Make sure you check out every episode of The Kevin Kelly Show right here on the Place to Be Nation. PlaceToBeNation.com, The Kevin Kelly Show. Every episode is a winner. At least we hope. Place to Be Nation's Justin Rosero here. In addition to The Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes at placetobenation.com. You can check out Scott Criscolo and me on The Mothership, The Place to Be podcast, home of great interviews and our famous vintage vault pay-per-view reviews. If you need your fix of current wrestling talk, we have plenty of options for you, including Main Event, which features a roundtable discussion led by PTBN analysts and special guests, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, including immediate feedback and discussion for WWE, NXT, Ring of Honor, and New Japan Super Shows. Also, be sure to relive wrestling's past with Graham Cawthon's excellent exclusive History of Wrestling podcast, Phil Schneider's Digging in the Crates, and our monthly pay-per-view rewind roundtable series led by Ben Morse. And join pro wrestling only's Will and I on the Dangerous Alliance podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. Sports fans have plenty to enjoy as well. We feature the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott, Dr. G, Cowboy, and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather, Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast, which takes a year-round deep dive into pro hoops, and the TJ McLoon Show, featuring great guests from around the world of sports journalism. PTBN also proudly features the Richard and the Mailman Podcast, specializing in the world of TV, thought, leadership, anger, and irreverence. As mentioned, all these shows available on PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. PTBN also is a home to tremendous in-depth features on pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, Scott Keats, RSPWFAQ.com blog, and Piledriver.net. Do you watch pro wrestling? Do you love pro wrestling? We do too. And there's only one podcast feed that you can't miss. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. That's the pro wrestling only place to be nation podcast network. We have a host of brilliant shows dedicated to wrestling past and present. Whether it's the territories, Japan, Lucha, old school or new school, we've got something for you. Get a dose of history on Exile on Bad Street with Chris Zellner. Listen to reviews of current pay-per-views on the PTBN reaction shows. Not just WWE, but New Japan, Ring of Honor, and NXT. And get your weekly update on everything else that's going on in the indies, Lucha, and beyond on This Week in Wrestling. 
Relive WCW supercards on where the big boys play with Parv and Chad. Join Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave on one of the very best shows for super hardcore nerds wrestling culture. Go deep into WWF history and discover the Bob Backlund and Bruno Sammartino eras on Titans of Wrestling. Don't miss the Pro Wrestling Super Show with Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston. You can get the full archive of Goodwill Wrestling with good old Will from Texas. There's tag teams back again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze. Then there's the only pro wrestling game show, Brain Buster, with me, Johnny Sorrow, and a panel of great guests every time. Get them all on one feed. P-W-O-P-T-B-N. Podcast Network. You know you want to hear it. minute and five second schmooze because I can't find the hang up button because it keeps moving around as the ads appear and disappear and move every control of the fucking window all around. <laughs> God fucking damn it. Oh, I'm glad I'm recording this. I think this is going up as our first podcast. Welcome back, folks. That was a little <laughs> snippet of a test recording from a while back when Scott was having a few issues, or as I like to call it, our new segment, Scott versus the Skype ad. Yes, the Skype ad. The one that kept disappearing and then reappearing, but never actually changing. Hey, hey, Scott, can I ask you a question? I'm quite confident you have that ability. Are you, are you coming to the tree? Where a dead man called out for his love to flee? Strange things did happen here. No stranger would it be. If we met at midnight in the hangar tree. Just right up in it. That would be strange. <laughs> Oof. Woof. So. The, uh. The Hungry Game, part three, part one. The Mocking Jay, which I think tells us which side Katniss decides to be on, right? There's there, a chance she was going to be on the President Snow side. She makes the offer toward the end, actually. Well, we'll get to that scene. Oh, we should talk about that scene. I don't think that's on our rundown yet, but we should talk about that scene. Uh, we'll, I am sure that we will. I think the first thing to talk about in this movie is something we talked about a lot in the last movie, and it's the ongoing mythologizing of Katniss... That sort of mythologizing, morphing into full-on propaganda, and the fact that they're doing it on both sides, which I think is very interesting. K 
Katniss wakes up. She's in District 13, wherever that is, whatever. She meets up with the people in charge. She meets Philip Seymour Hoffman, who doesn't say, Hey, Katniss, how are you? She says, There's the girl on fire. There's the Mockingjay. Before using her name at all, before referring to her any other way, he is talking about her propaganda potential. He is talking about, We've got to do these things. You've got to be a leader. You've got to inspire people. The only thing she cares about at this point is PETA. Yes. She is not about your revolution. She's never been about the revolution. Exactly. She's trying to be a human being. She says flat out in the movie later in that scene I just realized we should talk about, the only thing she's ever tried to do is keep her family alive. That's all she has tried to do throughout this entire thing. That's why she broke the law to hunt illegally. That's why she volunteered for the games. That's why she pretended to be in love with PETA. That's why she kept pretending to be in love with PETA on the tour. That's why she went back into the games to try to protect PETA. That's all she has tried to do at any point in any of this is keep her family alive. Keep the people she cares about alive. Her mother, her sister, Gail, PETA. Gail has relatives that didn't really make the movie. Meanwhile, she has been stage-managed by everyone at all times. Everyone but her. Ever, everyone but basically, yeah. yeah. All of the people in power are just interested in her propaganda potential. I mean, apparently one of the high-ranking members of this resistance in District 13 is the guy who last week was basically President Snow's Lenny Riefenstahl. Yes, now he's President Coyne's Lenny Riefenstahl. Yes, well, if you've got to be someone's. <laughs> and, of course, PETA is reintroduced as sort of a dueling propagandist. He's doing all of the ultra-hardcore, stage-managed, sit-down interviews with Caesar Flickerman. Much re a reduced role for Stanley Tucci this time, but at least he gets in there. Yes. Um, he's not quite as animated as he was in Catching Fire. Well, he's he's got... Uh, well, I mean, he was talking about violent deaths then, too, but it's somewhat of a different milieu. But PETA is doing these sit-down interviews, these ultra-fake stage-managed ball, while we see in one of the big comic relief scenes in the movie, Katniss just naturally rejects. Like, her body rejects the, uh, the studio recording like an invading virus. You mean that wonderful scene where Academy Award-winning actress Jennifer Lawrence has to act like somebody who can't act? She nailed it. <laughs> well, she's got an Academy Award! Hey! It's a little bit tidy that she sees this hospital blow up and immediately turns in the performance of her life. Well, it's supposed to play into what they were talking about before. that The way she naturally reacts in extreme situations is compelling. Right, right. That's exactly what they were talking about in that, in that earlier scene where they're desperately trying to go around the table and get everyone to name times when Katniss inspired them and Effie is the only one who can come up with anything. Well, there's several characters in the book that aren't present in that scene in the movie and so they give some of these lines to Effie. Holy, holy inappropriate lines to give to Effie. They ask, they ask Effie, and Effie says, Oh, and she volunteered for her sister. That really moved me. When Effie was there when she volunteered for her sister, and Effie's reaction was, Oh, you don't want her to get all the glory, do you? 
Yes, but she's in a different environment now, and she's trying to adapt. It may be too early to move on to this. I still like Effie's characterization in, in the movies. I, I still do. Mm. We'll go we'll, more in-depth in Effie later. Yeah, we'll, You're still talking about mythologizing and propaganda. Yeah, we'll, yeah we'll, we'll get there. And I think it's... It's a sign that these movies are being made for the moment and that the books were written very recently that Katniss's main contribution to the rebellion is to make viral videos. Well, propaganda videos is hardly new. You just referenced Lenny Riefenstahl. Well, yes, but Lenny Riefenstahl wasn't being broadcast on like a pirate level. Well, no, those were the Allied broadcasts. That was, yeah. that was Radio Free... Uh, Radio Free Europe. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, of, of course there are historical precedents, but the fact that it's specifically short-ish videos that are kind of packaged moments that are sent to people is kind of a little more of the moment. Mm. And then later she entertains uh, a bunch of the rebels with her cat. So she does understand viral videos. <laughs> well, there's a whole thing about the crazy cat game that I think that may actually be one thing they do better in the movie. Because in the book, she goes on a whole thing about the cat chasing the light, and it's like her trying to chase PETA, and she's like the cat, and what happens when PETA's out of reach? And it's a whole thing where it just like hammers the metaphor over and over and over like a railroad spike. Yeah, it sounds a little overwrought. Whereas in the movie, it's, you know, she's leading the cat around with the flashlight and then she gets pensive then she sits down next to Finnick and she says, I just realized President Snow's leading me around by the nose just like I was leading the cat around and that's it. It's actually sort of more deftly handled in that scene than in, than in the book. Right. And then there are these viral videos produced by the Rebellion starring Katniss. We mentioned in the last episode that a lot of the advertising and a lot of the merchandising kind of tied into the Capitol. These videos that the Rebellion makes use the exact same logos, the exact same font, some of the same music, I think. Yeah. As the, like, real-world TV ads for these movies, which is just... So interesting that they would put the exact same branding on the Rebellion because, of course, you know, we're conditioned to sympathize with the Rebellion and whatever, even as they use Katniss in a lot of the same ways that the Capitol did. They're still the Rebellion. Yeah, you weren't paying attention to this stuff, but when they were doing marketing for the movies, for the second and third movie and the fourth, they did release viral videos, not... Not like, look at my cat viral videos, but they released, like, you know, one, two, three-minute videos that were produced in-universe. Interesting. Like, they had, like, videos of President Snow sitting on a throne-like chair, flanked by Peta and Johanna, giving, essentially, a capital propo about, you know, the capital is the mother and the father of the districts. It was basically an in-universe capital propaganda video, which never showed up in any of the movies. It was just a vehicle for advertising the movie. But it was basically a capital propaganda piece. And they did the same thing on the Rebel side, producing Rebel propaganda videos as advertising for the movie. See, that's, that's pretty cool. Rather than just kind of packaging the same clips over and over again, it's kind of extending the universe a little. Yeah. Kind of flushing things out. 
One thing that ties back into that, where the capital is using the people it has as props in propaganda pieces, and District 13 is using the people it has as props in propaganda pieces, ties back into what you were saying when we were talking about Catching Fire, that Katniss isn't really deciding anything for herself. Right. Like, she eventually chooses to embrace her propaganda role, but she only does that as part of, like, a bargain to, you know, try to get this rebellion to actually do something good. Something else that I think was interesting about that sort of dueling propaganda aspect of it was the scene where Caesar and Peta talk about whether Katniss will ever be able to see the video they're producing because the rebels probably aren't giving her information and they might be torturing her and making her say the things she's saying just just totally projecting everything that they're doing well that's I was gonna get into that a little later how they're sort of soft pedaling the, the movie sort of soft pedals uh, oh. District 13 and President Coyne to a bit. In the book, there actually is a propo video that PETA does that they try to hide from Katniss. And it's actually the source of a big fight between Katniss and Gale. Rather than Gale's bad reaction to one of PETA's videos, it's that Gale tried to help Coyne and Plutarch and all the other people in charge to hide this video from Katniss. Interesting. There's a lot of hinting that District 13 is in its own way pretty bad, but there's a lot more of it in the book. That was something that I was wondering how much they were, like you said, soft-pedaling and, and kind of making it into a little more of a cliché rebellion story. Well, I don't know if they're making it more of a cliché rebellion story, but President Coyne is much more two-dimensional in the book. She's much more straightforward, antagonistic toward Katniss rather than in the movie where she like tries to like commiserate with her at times and like show her great compassion for what Katniss is going through. In the book, she's much more straightforwardly antagonistic because she perceives Katniss's popularity as a threat to her own power. Rather than just trying to use her to further her own power. Well, she is trying to use her to further her own power, but as soon as Katniss stands up and says, I have conditions... She then immediately starts treating her as an antagonist. Right, right, right. Because that's the sign that Katniss realizes she has power, and Katniss realizing she has power is a threat to Coin's power. I I do suppose, like a lot of things in this movie, we're probably just going to see, like, what happens in the next movie. To, to a great extent. I mean, this is part one. Yeah. We'll have to see how it all plays out in the climax of the story in the next movie. Right, sure. Uh, for instance, uh, do you want to move on to the love story? Well, how... <laughs> there isn't much love story in this movie, since yep. Peter is only in the same room with Katniss once, and he does not exactly display his love. Uh, no, not really. <laughs> you, who have not read the books, what was your reaction to that scene? My reaction to that scene, before they explained it to Katniss in the next scene, was pretty much what they said except without some of the details i mean i figure they must have tortured him in some way to make her to make him violent or whatever especially after president snow gave his little sign off about i don't remember what the line was like the it's things, the things that we love that have the power to destroy us yeah exa exactly and and so that's one way that katniss gave snow maybe a little more power than she intended to over her otherwise 
there's some love triangle stuff, and can can someone come and save me from love triangles? Oh, the love triangle doesn't get any better in the next movie. Oh no, I I, I don't want to. Yeah, all the stuff. Peter going crazy and trying to kill Katniss does not exactly settle the love triangle. Oh great. <laughs> No, just like de-venomize him or whatever. I don't know. I ex- I expect it'll be a huge thing, and I expect it'll be the cause of much melodrama, which... I don't know who really loves love triangles other than movie executives. Um, yeah, a lot of the stuff with Gale was... Okay, some of it was tiresome because of the love triangle aspect... Some of it was okay because they were acting a little more like human beings who aren't caught up in this ultra-melodramatic thing and just, you know, people or friends who want to support each other and want to help each other. And he wants to make sure she's okay after she goes through this other huge traumatic experience and is going through all these huge traumatic experiences and wants to, I don't know, do things they're used to so they go hunting or whatever. That aspect of it, I thought, was okay because it was more just humans being human. Otherwise, save me from love triangles, please. Well, they need to... There is some setup going on for the second half of the book. Okay. One thing related to the love story that I did appreciate in the movie that in the book, again, is done a lot with Katniss's internal monologue, but the movie makes it very clear that her primary motivation for a lot of this is still PETA. You know, she agrees to be part of the propaganda effort to try to get them to save PETA. Every time PETA comes on screen, she, like, runs up to the screen. She can't watch it from 20 feet away. She has to run up and be as close to the television image of PETA as she can. Even though PETA is never there, the movie does show repeatedly how important he is to Katniss. Right. The, the, the two actors aren't physically on the same set, but they're in frame together a lot. I read something once that said, in the first book, PETA is primarily motivated by his love for Katniss... And Katniss is primarily motivated by her love for Prim. In the second book, especially the second half of the second book, each is primarily motivated by their love for each other. Because each goes into the second games trying to get the other one out. In the third movie, and the first half of the third book, Katniss is primarily motivated by Peta's absence. Right. And so even though he's not there, he is still a motivating factor. Yeah, for sure. Um, I... Wasn't concentrating as much on that aspect of the movie because I was just done with the love story, but that that's definitely there. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm trying to to pay attention to the love story without getting bogged down in the love triangle. Oh, okay. So, in addition to whatever anxieties she has over Peta being captive in the capital, what did you think about how this movie continued the portrayal of Katniss's PTSD symptoms? I really liked the opening of the movie where she had fled her bed and she was hiding out in some place small and some place where she would feel a little more safe and secure and she was reminding herself what is real to try to break out of, I don't know, uh, flashbacks or delusions or whatever. But that scene of her in a very fragile state, just reminding herself of, of bedrock reality. I think that was really evocative. 
I think the movie did pretty well portraying some of the characters being a little callous about her PTSD. I think that was part of Coin and, and Plutarch and, and everyone trying to move her around like a game piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's definitely an element of it. The book has a lot more scenes of that nature. She spends a lot of her time in 13 while Pete is captive. She spends a lot of her time in, like, supply closets and places like that. Like, trying to hide from everyone. You know, she doesn't want to be dragged into meetings. She doesn't want to be dragged into videos. She's just hiding in a supply closet in a small, dark place. And she does that mantra of, what do you know for sure? My name is Katniss Everdeen. I was in The Hunger Games. I escaped. She does does that a a lot in the book. So I really liked that that was included, and I thought it was portrayed really well. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the reaction of 13 to send some guard to track her down and drag her out of there and forcibly medicate her was also very well portrayed and translated from the book. Yes. (laughs) Well, in addition to Katniss's PTSD, and I keep coming back to this topic since the first movie erased PETA's leg amputation and his use of a prosthetic, we talked about showing Chaff's missing hand... In the second movie, in this movie, we see the effects of the electric shock Beatty suffered at the end of the last movie. He's now in a wheelchair. And they also finally show one of the Avoxes, who have been there since the first movie, but were just standing in the background silent and never commented upon. But now the movie finally notes them that an Avox is somebody who committed a crime in the capital, and their punishment is to have their tongue cut out and be made a slave. And we see an Avox character who communicates with his brother using American Sign Language. Uh, yeah, the um, the tongue cutting and, and everything uh, of the Avoxes is suitably horrifying. Well, that's included in the other books. There's a character that is a servant in the District 12 suite in the training center who Katniss recognizes because... She saw her in the woods outside 12 once being captured by a capital hovercraft. And so Katniss recognizes this person and that's when they explain to her what an AVOX is. And so they're there in the first and second movie, or in the first and second book. But it's not until the third movie here that the movies finally acknowledge them and explain what they are. Yeah, yeah. I I only noticed one in the background in the second movie. I suppose they were there in the first, but Yeah, they were like I said, they were just standing still and silent in the background. Right. So, yeah, uh they're they're definitely doing better with the uh disabled characters as in not taking them out, yes. right? So, uh big ups for that one. Moving on again, do you want to talk about Effie now? Oh, you say you like Effie in this movie. I, I, I did like Effie in this movie as the person who is brought to District 13 under what circumstances, I'm not sure. But, well, I guess since she was helping, she was going to be killed otherwise because everyone's going to be killed. But um, she is still trying to hang on to a little bit of her lifestyle, which isn't portrayed as grievously horrible, except that she kind of... I don't want to say innocently, but she kind of unknowingly says some horrible things yeah. when, when, she, when she talks about Kat, uh, Kat is volunteering, inspiring her so much, and Kat is singing the song for Rue, inspiring her so much. It's kind of like in the last movie when she said they really deserved to live it up on the on the victory tour, and, and Katniss reminded her, yeah, by killing people. 
Yeah, that's the thing. I think we, I just mentioned that before. You know, when Katniss actually did volunteer, Effie's reaction was, well, that's your sister you were replacing. I bet you didn't want her to get all the glory, huh? And I mean, how touched was she that Katniss sang for Rue when... She's been working for the games for umpty nine years. She's been reaping people for umpty nine years. She's actually the one that pulls the slip of paper out of the ball and says, Primrose Everdeed, come on down. You're going to get your head bashed in. And she gives it all her best gusto. And now all of a sudden, well, when Katniss sang for Rue, that really touched me. She's trying, okay? She is trying to fit in with a bunch of people who are getting a little more genuine. Well, at least Katniss is. Katniss is pretty genuine. Coming from a society that is the most fake that fake can be. But the main thing I enjoyed about Effie in this movie was her clothing. When she is introduced complaining about not having her wigs and her dresses or whatever, she's trying to sew one. She never quite finishes it by the end of the movie. Uh, but throughout the movie, every single time she shows up in a new scene, she has another little item that's veering toward the capital. You know, she has a bandana, and then she has a brooch, and then she has a shirt that she cut up and sewed up differently to look all freaky like in the capital. Like, every time she shows up, she has another part of her outfit that's kind of tipping toward what she's used to. I think that was really subtle, and I, th and I think, like, looking at that every time she showed up was pretty fun. See, I would totally disagree with that. Because if they're trying to continue the characterization they seem to be doing at the second half of the second movie, about, you know, she finally realized that murder is bad, and now, now she thinks it's wrong and should be stopped, then why is she spending all of her time lamenting that she's not in the capital anymore and trying to put together outlandish outfits out of the remnants of her District 13 jumpsuits? Well, I mean, some of the things that happen are just horrible, but you can't expect people to live without couture. She has had, like, little pinpricks of awareness have started to show up, but she is still bred to concentrate on the most shallow things. And that is an incredibly hard thing to unlearn. Meanwhile, everyone else just kind of rolls their eyes at her. I also thought it was sort of ridiculous, the assertion she makes that out of everyone in District 13, she's the one that knows all about Katniss Everdeen. Well, I guess Gail was, was there, and her mom, and her <laughs> sister, and and the, well, not the cat at that point, right? I mean, I mean, Effie did genuinely do her best in her job of helping Katniss and Peeta. I would never say that she didn't do that, but she was, she, she doesn't understand Katniss. No, I suppose not. On what level does she understand Katniss? On the level of scraping and scrounging, desperately trying to find enough food to feed your family for another day? Or on the level of going into the arena and murdering people twice? I'm not like, sure which one of those she's closer to. What sort of near-death traumatic experiences are fueling Effie Trinket's PTSD? I th I, I'm pretty sure one time one of her wigs caught on fire. Yeah, I don't you know. 
I mean, if you like it, you like it. I'm not trying to talk you out of it. I'm just saying it's not... I don't. Sure. One thing I wanted to get your opinion on was the scene where they blow up the dam in District 5. Because there's a lot of divergent opinion about that in the online fandom. So I wondered what you thought of it. Where they, they have Katniss singing The Hanging Tree for the Propo video... And they transition from that right into the people in District 5 carrying the bombs to the dam while also singing the Hanging Tree song. Yeah, I, I, I think that was... First off, it's a, it's a good song. It's a solid good song. It is. So, well, well done movie people. Um, Katniss's singing in the movies is never quite on the level it's said to be in the books, but that, that song was done well. Yeah, but I mean, wouldn't wouldn't it be a little ridiculous for this rando from the poor district to to suddenly be this world class singer? Well, that's what she is in the books. Okay. Um, no, the 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 scene at the dam, I thought I thought was fine. It was a, a perfectly good uh, folk song becomes revolutionary rallying cry. I've seen objections to the dam scene that claim it's a foolhardy attack. They claim that it obviously murders civilians who are working in the dam. They say that blowing up a hydroelectric dam is a stupid thing to do because it destroys infrastructure. They say that blowing up a hydroelectric dam is a war crime. You know, I can see some of that. If this were a real-world revolution, I mean... If you're fighting a revolution against a tyrannical government and it's like a guerrilla war and you're committing acts of terrorism against the, you know, tyrannical government, you don't target civilians because that's horrifying. In fiction, I'm a little more forgiving of the particulars of that kind of stuff. And... Of course it damages infrastructure. They want to damage the infrastructure of the capital. Well, I think the theory is that your goal is to take over. And so once you take over, wouldn't you like to have a nice power-generating hydroelectric dam? Well, yes, obviously someone's going to have to build a new one at some point. (laughs) (laughs) I sort of had another take on that scene, and, you know, sometimes I tend to have weird takes on things. Hey... I'm the one that saw the novel Starship Troopers as a condemnation of the glorification of militarism, which I don't think even Robert Heinlein saw it that way. (laughs) So sometimes I have weird takes on things. I saw the damn scene as illustrating the great tragedy of the rebellion. How's that? Like, here are these poor saps, and they run headlong, unarmed, Toward a line of soldiers armed with machine guns. And just use dozens of themselves as human shields in order to get people close enough to beat up the machine gunners with their bare hands. Just so they can blow up a dam and they're motivated to do this by the slimy propaganda effort put together by District 13 and the former head game maker. I saw that as illustrating the way that Katniss is being used by these people in charge, Coin and Heavensby, to manipulate people into doing crazy things like charging a line of machine gunners unarmed. 
Yes, well, ob obviously that's a horrifically tragic thing for them. And anytime, anytime these folks are fighting the peacekeepers, they're at an obvious disadvantage and a lot of, they give up a lot of casualties. I mean, even the scene in the lumber district where everyone tries to climb up into the trees with the line of peacekeepers behind them, the rows of people right in front of the peacekeepers all get it. You know, yes. long enough for the rest to climb up the trees and, and set off the explosives. There are major, major costs of anything going on here. Because all these people are unarmed, so their main offensive tactic is to overwhelm the people with machine guns so that they have to kill so many of them that there are some left that finally get within punching range. Which sort of, you know, doesn't exactly take credence away from PETA's point that we're all going to get killed and we're going to drop below a critical population level. Could be. Could be. That certainly can't be how they win everything. They can't just mass up, like, piles of zombies or whatever and physically overwhelm people with fleets of aircraft and armies with machine guns and whatever. But for isolated attacks and even like I'm not even sure if that one in the lumber district was actively supported and, and conceived by district 13 or if that was just citizen action yeah I, that I was think, probably a more local thing yeah I think some of that was a little ambiguous the dam was obviously a, an operation yeah um, they had to get those explosives from someone they had to get those explosives from someone and they had to have the timing to shut the power down so that everything else could go off but yeah, in, in, in a revolution like that where people are unarmed and they overwhelmingly outnumber the forces against them, sometimes that might be a sensible thing to do. Well, it depends on the objective. Sure. Here's one thing I'm very curious about. Similar to the bread flashback scene from the first movie, how much did you get out of Finnick's propo video that he does during the attack? I thought that was great. I thought that was a very good use of the time. I liked that they used that opportunity to work in a lot of the background and a lot of the details that might not have been exactly crucial to get into the movie, but it was an opportunity to get that in there during what might have otherwise been kind of a typical infiltration scene. Hmm. And so, switching back and forth between those, I thought was a very efficient use of time. I, I think that was good screenwriting. Okay. That's completely the opposite opinion that most of the fandom has. <laughs> really? Most of the fandom that read all of that in the book and then saw the way it was used in the movie, and I sort of agreed with this when I saw it, my, my reaction and the reaction I've seen from a lot of people online is basically... Well, they completely shafted the power of what Phoenix says. No one's going to be paying any attention to him because there's this raid going on. Everyone's going to be watching that. Phoenix thing is just background noise. They've totally shafted all the pathos of his character by relegating his traumatic experiences to background noise for the commando strike. Oh no, I wasn't tuning it out at all. Okay. I suppose a person could, and like I said, it wasn't all that crucial to get in. I mean, you could, I suppose, tune it out and, you know, get through the movie, but I thought that that was very interesting and an interesting way to use him. 
Okay. I hope most people followed it like that, rather than the way that a lot of us that read the book assumed people would. Uh, it does also follow through on his line about secrets uh, from, yes. from the last movie. Yeah. Uh, to see what some of those secrets are. And I had heard on a podcast I listened to before we rewatched the first movie... Some people were saying that one thing they couldn't portray in the movie was the way that President Snow smelled. And I had no idea what that referred to or what that meant until Finnick told me a little while ago. Well, they do have that one scene in Catching Fire at the party at the end of the Victory Tour where he takes a drink and then his backwash is all bloody. Yes! Yes, I noticed that and I didn't understand it. Yeah, well, that's what that was hinting at, that he has sores in his mouth from all the poison he's ingested. Okay, well, that's also appropriately horrifying. Like, <laughs> so much in these movies. <laughs> yes, these movies cover horrifying events and horrifying subjects. Yes. Also, wow, they got forced prostitution and sex slavery into a PG-13 movie. Yeah, they, they, they got a whole lot into these movies, if you stop and think about it. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole lot of people getting their heads bashed in. Well, there's at least one person getting his head bashed in, out of which they only cut, like, a split second. Like, they have the person's hand coming down, and then they cut away for a split second and cut back to a bloody brick. They didn't cut out very much there. Those yeah. dots you can easily connect. That kid totally got his brains bashed in. But they got it into a kid's movie. Got it into a movie that made a good jillion dollars. One other thing I was glad they included, just from the perspective of Finnick's characterization, is they showed him a few times with uh, his rope tying various knots in the rope as sort of a way of focusing him. Yeah. That, that I was I was glad they worked that in. They also showed Katniss with the pearl that Peta gave her in the arena several times. Yes, I, I appreciate little details like that. Yeah, sure, definitely uh, following up on on some of the little things from the last movie. Like we did say about the last movie, this movie is a lot more uh, competently made, I guess you could say, than the first one. Well, I don't want to say the first one was incompetently made. I just don't think it was a very good adaptation of the book. Right, right. That's that. I don't think it told the story of the book very well. Yeah. Uh, What else did you want to hit on before we uh, before we leave this movie? I kind of wanted to get your opinion on the scene right after Finnick at the end of the commando raid where Katniss and President Snow do like a Skype chat. What did you think of that? Because I can't judge that scene fairly. I think that scene was functional. Again, I wasn't really hanging on it because it had too much to do with the love story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in terms of face-to-face-ish confrontations between them, it didn't really have the um, intrigue and some of the layers of their scenes in the last movie it, it, it was just him being really diabolical i did kind of appreciate when he started talking down to her as a child because she's, she's a supposed child to be a child yeah because she actually is a child it was getting a little tedious before he came on when they had that long delay when she just kept repeating president snow can you hear me president snow president snow yeah i kind of felt like if they were going to go that long before he finally answered she should have like started taunting him to get him to finally answer rather than just keep repeating her name yeah yeah that was a little weird 
I can't judge that scene fairly because that scene is not in the book. It's a complete invention of the screenwriters. And so that automatically prejudiced me against it. Okay. <laughs> so I can't really fairly evaluate it. So in the book, then she's just in the control center and then they come out with PETA? So... No, in the book, she goes outside to give that propo, 13 is alive and well and so am I. Except when she was in the bunker, she realized how they're using PETA against her. So when she tries to give the propo, she has a breakdown. She goes outside to give that propo, finds the rose that they dropped from the plane, and she has a breakdown. And they anesthetize her again, which they do whenever she has a breakdown. Oh, good lord. So they anesthetize her again, and when she wakes up, Hamish is there saying, Hey, they left on the mission to go get PETA. And then she sits in a room with Finnick and ties knots for a few hours, and then they get back and she goes in the hospital and meets PETA and gets choked. By the way, sober Hamish isn't really as far from drunk Hamish as I thought he might be. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was wondering if, if that guy sobers up. I mean, ooh, how, how much of a get-up-and-go guy is he going to be? Well, he's still, you know, depressed. He is still, yes. I mean, that's what they say when, when people sober up, right? That now you have to deal with whatever you were drinking to deal with. Yeah. If you didn't notice, and they sort of show it in the movie, but they don't make a point of it in the movie, but you can tell from the movie, 13 does not exactly have the best psychiatric care. No, not at all. Like, they, the way they, they sobered mm. Hamish up is they put him in a room without alcohol and waited for him to stop having the shakes. You know? Yeah, yeah. They, they seem pretty... I think they would say they're efficient, and others would say they're brutal. You know, their way of treating Katniss's PTSD is to repeatedly anesthetize her whenever she has a breakdown and then drag her out of whatever closet she secured herself in. Her, their way of treating Finnick's PTSD is to let him have a rope to tie knots in. Their way of treating Hamish's PTSD is to cold turkey dry him out. Yeah, they're very, very direct slash brutal. Because this is war and we don't have time or whatever. And the movie even kind of goes easy on that, because in the book, when Johanna cracks Katniss over the head to knock her out, to cut her tracker out at the end of the second book, Katniss gets a rather bad concussion. And she spends most of the first part of the third book experiencing the effects of a rather severe concussion, in addition to her PTSD and other mental illness, and repeatedly being knocked out by 13 doctors whenever she starts getting agitated. My goodness, the, the trials and tribulations of Katniss Everdeen. I mean, the list is as long as your arm. That's, that's part of the whole, you know, start with what you know, go through your mantra, my name is Katniss Everdeen, because her head is all scrambled from the concussion, right. in addition to having PTSD symptoms. That poor, poor girl. <laughs> Basically. All she wants to do is put food on her family. <laughs> who among us doesn't? Who, who indeed? Uh, what else we got for this movie? Um, the only other note I had uh, was part of Gale's tirade against Peta after he did his interview against the rebellion. Katniss keeps saying that they must be torturing him, they must be lying to him, whatever, whatever. And Gale says, you know, I don't care. I would never say what he just said. Which is the sort of total bullshit that you hear from people who have never been tortured. Yeah. Well, I thought the movie kind of went both ways on that. Because after Peta's first propo, Gale is the one that tells Katniss... 
They may be forcing him to say it. He probably made a deal with them to protect you. Yeah. And then after the second propo, Katniss is saying, he's being tortured, he's being forced to say that, and Gale says, I don't give a shit, I would die before I said that. So it's kind of a rapid turnaround on Gale's behalf. Yeah, he's... District 13 as a whole may not be, and he, I think, really isn't, like, such an archetype of the virtuous revolutionary. He really is just trying too hard. Yes. Well, 13 is very much, you're either with us or against us. Yeah. That's why as soon as Peter got put on television saying bad things about the rebellion, he suddenly needed a pardon. Yeah, because, I mean, that's exactly the sort of person who, when the revolution comes, their back is up against the wall. Yeah. Alright, so, we will wrap this section, and we will be back very soon, after the premiere of The Hungry Games Part 3, Part 2, The Search for More Money. Are you, are you coming to the tree? They strung up a man, they say who murdered three. Strange things did happen here, no stranger would it be if we met at midnight in the hanging tree. Are you, are you coming to the tree where dead man called out for his love to flee? Strange things did happen here, no stranger would it be If we met at midnight in the hanging tree Are you, are you? I am Glenn and you are Scott. Real or not real? Real. We just saw the premiere of The Hunger Games Part 3, Part 2. Real or not real? Real. This segment of the podcast will have spoilers for the entire Ding Dang movie, as well as probably the book. Real or not real? Real. So we just saw this movie. What did you think of it? I was generally pleased with it. I thought it did a reasonably good job of translating the book into a movie. At least as good a job as movies 2 and 3 did. Although, again, not really a better job than movies 2 and 3 did. Really? What makes you say that? Well, there were parts that didn't make it in, mainly. There were, there were parts that were changed and parts that didn't make it in. And from my perspective, I'm really looking for the book on screen. And so stuff they changed and stuff they left out detract from that. Okay. One of the things I was looking for... Going into this, one of the things I was wondering about after watching Part 3, Part 1 was whether or not they'd have enough story to fill another movie after splitting the book in two, which doesn't always happen, but this time it really, really did, because they had two long movies that were pretty jam-packed. Yes. They really could have split the second movie into two movies because they left so much out of that movie and raced through so much of that movie. So they could have done that there. But they definitely had enough story to tell to fill both movies. Yeah, for sure. And they both, I thought, made pretty good movies. I think this one went in some directions that I really liked, and we'll get into that as we go. Well, did you think the second movie worked on its own, 
or was it really just the second half of a five-hour presentation? That's a little difficult to judge, having just seen the other movie the other day, but I think it worked pretty well as its own presentation. I mean, if you know like the general story going in, I think you can still get a lot out of this one. Of course, one of the elements we've been tracking through all of these movies is the manipulation and creation of mythologies and the way that propaganda is used and the way it's portrayed and sort of the interactions that the characters have based on that. Well, in this movie, we sort of see that run to its conclusion. We see how their use of Katniss develops through the war and how they try to use Katniss, her image anyway, to end the war and eventually how that sort of breaks down for them. Right, and we see both sides trying to use her to, to end the war, of course, because you know, as soon as she's plausibly dead, uh, Snow and, and his people kind of jump on that. But, of course, as long as she's alive, Coin and all the District 13 people, including Plutarch, who, as the, like, TV producer, appears to be one of her right-hand men which tells you a lot about how important that is in her administration, in the story, and in the movie itself, that Katniss is still being constantly stage-managed. Well, it's a propaganda war, and he's the propaganda master. Right, and a lot of this movie is depicting Katniss like scratching and clawing to try to get away from that whole dynamic. She runs away from District 13 to go to the front lines because she has this... This, this personal mission to kill Snow, because of course she does, because it's a movie. But as soon as they find out that she's gone, and where she's gone, they send the TV crew to accompany her again. Because if she's going to run off and try to infiltrate the Capitol, then they're going to exploit it as much as they can. Well, you mentioned as soon as she was plausibly dead, Snow jumped on that to exploit the news for his own purposes. You didn't mention that as soon as Katniss was plausibly dead, Coin and Thirteen were equally eager to jump on that and exploit it for their own purpose. Oh yeah, there there was a major strain running through it of uh, Coin becoming a little more callous than she had been characterized as before, but not in a way that's that's not believable. Just being more uh, willing to use whatever happens to Katniss, whether she's dead or alive, to her advantage. Well, to a certain extent, they were already doing that. I mean, even before she went to District 8, it was actually Katniss's idea where Coyne asked her, you know, well, what happens if you get killed? And Katniss said, well, get it on camera. So to a certain extent, they were already doing that. But the more sort of colder, more callous, more disregard for Katniss that Coyne shows in this movie is much closer to the way the character is shown in the book than the sort of more sympathetic face that she showed in the first half of Mockingjay movie. She was portrayed a, a little sympathetically, but still kind of uh, ruthlessly pragmatic. Well, she was she was always shown as ruthlessly pragmatic, but I mean, there was that scene where, you know, when Katniss was waiting for the mission to retrieve PETA and Coin is sitting there, like, commiserating with her. Like, that's not the sort of thing the character in the book would have done. Right, well, you can you can easily read that as just trying to be in her good graces, but it's portrayed a little more genuinely, right. Yeah, but the way she's shown in Mockingjay Part 2, her desire to seize power, her desire to eliminate any threat to her power, 
that is all very much what is she is shown to be in the book. Yeah, it's immediately and repeatedly shown by many characters that they're aware that she's going to grab power. Uh, there's that conversation, I don't remember which character it is, has with Katniss saying that, you know, they promised a free election and is Katniss going to throw her support to her? And Katniss pauses for a second and the person says, if, if you don't immediately say yes, then you're a barrier to her. Yeah, that, that, that scene is almost directly out of the book. I mean, they changed, like, a couple of lines, but that scene is almost directly translated out of the book between Katniss and Boggs when they have that conversation. Boggs, right, right. And then, of course, uh, Julianne Moore kind of shades her performance that way and gets a little more smarmy, uh, especially when she starts talking about being the interim president of, of the nation because... People just can't can't have an election right now. Yeah. She's very careful to frame everything as if she's doing it on behalf of the country. You know, the country needs a leader in this moment. And I find myself in this position where I seem to be in a position to lead. And I'll just have to fill the power vacuum. Yeah, she becomes a lot more like President Snow in that way. Like, there, there was never any moment of genuine warmth from Snow in the previous movies. He was just kind of eerie and breezily in charge. Well, that was sort of the point of the parallel the whole time, was to draw parallels between District 13 and the Capitol, between Coin and Snow. They both use and manipulate and mythologize around Katniss for their own ends without any real regard for Katniss herself. They both use the same propaganda master to do it. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. They both even have tacky TV ads with her. I mean, there's there are yeah. all the things in the previous movies with, you know, the clips of Katniss as the tribute and as the victor and whatever. And then there's the broadcast that District 13 puts on with the picture of her at the end with the whistle. Just like all the trailers and TV ads for the other movies. Yes. Again, kind of tying the marketing into the diegetic marketing. Uh, One thing about that, when Coin is giving her eulogy for Katniss, I believe that's the first time in the movies they actually mentioned the seam, which is the neighborhood in District 12 where Katniss lives. That's the first time they mention that division within 12. Yeah, I think so. That jumped out at me. So what's been happening in this in this running theme of the mythology and propaganda and everything through the movie is is that it's been showing Katniss trying to survive through all of this, just trying to persist. And in this last movie, that takes a turn where she's not so much, I don't want to say passively, but I don't want to say inactively either, but she's not just trying to survive. She is trying like hell to take control of her own story, to take control of what she does. And she is frustrated in this over, over, and over again. Like I said, when she runs away and then is immediately followed by her camera crew, when she uh, wants to infiltrate the Capitol alone with Gale, apparently, and then is joined by Michelle Forbes and that whole commando group, which I had no idea Michelle Forbes was going to be in that movie. That was nice. <laughs> yeah, I remember when she was cast. That was interesting. I think she did a good job in that role. Yeah, definitely. 
So Katniss is trying to take control of her own story. She's trying to take the story that the Capitol wants to tell about her, which used to be that she was this celebrity victor and has now turned into that she's this lunatic revolutionary. And the story that District 13 wants to tell about her, that she's the Mockingjay, she's this firebrand that everyone needs to unite around. And she wants to tell a better story. It's it's almost like she's trying to win through aesthetics. Well, the first the first time she sort of starts telling her own story is that propo they film in District Two, where the refugee comes out of the collapsed underground military fortification and he has his gun under Katniss's chin and asks her, "Give me a reason why I shouldn't shoot you," and her answer is, "I don't have one. Go ahead." Yeah, that's that's sort of the first time where she starts taking some control and telling her own story rather than having other people construct stories around her. Right. That also uh, struck me as Katniss kind of reducing things to individual people and individual choices. She says, I can't give you a reason not to kill me, but you have the choice. Well, everything has always been about the individual person to Katniss throughout this whole thing. I mean, Hamish and Plutarch are the people trying to start a revolution, and Coin is the one trying to seize power, and Gale is the firebrand revolutionary, but Katniss says herself, all she's been trying to do this whole time is keep Prim alive and keep Peta alive. It's never been about the overarching theme for her, it's always been about the individual's. Yeah, and it's in that scene by the train where she kind of connects those individual lives and individual choices to the broader kind of struggle that they're going through. But then she collapses it to an individual again. She doesn't say, you know, we have the choice to stop killing and we'll be able to stop killing once the revolution wins. She says, we have the choice to stop killing each other because we need to kill Snow. Well, now, yes. Th- this this is where her story turns into one of uh, retributive violence, where she she is ob- obsessed, you could say obsessed, with this idea that the one thing she has to do, she doesn't want to keep making videos, she doesn't want to keep rallying people. The only thing she wants to do is kill President Snow because President Snow has harmed her so much. Yes, her and the people she cares about. Well, you're right. Uh, Her and the people she cares about and her through the people she cares about. She has this idea, in part put in her head by the people around her, Hamish and Plutarch and Coyne. She has the idea that if she can just kill Snow, that'll be the end of it. He is the source of evil, and if she can kill Snow, that'll end it, and everything will be better, and everyone will be safe. And it's not until the very, very end where she finally sort of gets a different idea. Because that's the story that we're told in media over and over again. You have a despotic government. The despotic government is led by one person who is the despot. And you have the revolutionary who needs personal revenge on that despot. And that despot dies... Roll credits, happy ending. You know, the Emperor dies at the at, at the end of the Star Wars trilogy, and everyone's firing off fireworks, happy ending. Uh, we'll see about that in about a month, but still. 
that story, as presented over and over in media, is uncomplicated. And the thing that you tried to tell me when we were talking about doing this whole thing was that this is the story that complicates it. And I wanted to see how much of that they did in the movie because there are reasons why the stories were told over and over again are the stories were told over and over again and the reason why the style remains vaguely the same. And this movie... I think, did a really good job making that complicated. Portraying that whole dynamic as human politics in another guise. And President Coyne is playing politics just as much as President Snow is. Yeah, well, you can see Katniss makes makes the decision that at this point, Snow has been removed from power. Killing him doesn't make anyone safer. At this point, he doesn't have power anymore, Coin is the bigger threat. Yeah, and and of course the movie makes that a little less complicated by starting to lay it on. Starting to have people say that she's going to seize power. By having President Snow say that she's going to seize power. And we as the audience are put to an extent in the same conflict as Katniss because... Do we trust President Snow at this point? Exactly, you can't trust... Anything President Snow says, except he's about to be killed anyway, what does he have to gain or lose? He can't get out of it. The only thing he can do is... We are dropping really huge spoilers here, folks. The only thing he can do is what he does do and tell Katniss what he needs to to stay alive for just a few more seconds. Because it, it is just a few more seconds. Well, President Snow makes the point, and it is an entirely valid point, and you can't counter-argue it. He did, they did promise not to lie to each other. And throughout all their interactions, I mean, President Snow puts out propaganda all the time, but whenever he sat down and talked to Katniss, he never lied to her. Face to face. Yeah. Yeah. President Snow, by the way, Donald Sutherland was playing him a lot more like a human in this movie, I thought. He seemed a lot older, he seemed a lot frailer. Well, they talk about this in real life, too. When you have to be a national leader during wartime, it takes a toll. Plus, you know, that lifetime of poisoning isn't helping. The lifetime of poisoning isn't helping. He is old. But he seemed a lot more primped and propped in at least the last movie. He he was in public a little more. We see him a little more with his advisors and everything. But he does he does genuinely seem like it's taking a toll on him. And that sort of little bit of humanizing kind of added to his scene with Katniss, where we know he's the evil despot. We know all the terrible things he done. He's done. We know all the lies that he's told. Although maybe not technically to her face, which. I don't know how much of a virtue that is at that moment. Huh? We know his character, we know everything he's done, but still, he's an old man in his garden coughing up blood. And he looks up, and he's Donald Sutherland with that toothy grin, and and he looks more like an old man than a, a horrific figure in that moment. And it's not enough to humanize him totally, because of course, like I said, we know, we know everything he's done, we know he's an inhuman monster. Well, that's the thing. He's a brutal, despotic leader. He sends children to be murdered. He sends peacekeepers to kill lots of people in the districts. And he's also a frail old man who's very sick. 
Those aren't mutually exclusive. No, definitely. Though those those are things that persist pretty often with uh, real life dictators as well. And that was another place actually where the movie started laying it on a little thick with President Coin. When she not only seizes power, she not only suspends the elections that most of the people never even knew were coming, but she also, as one of her first policy proposals, wants to send children back into the Hunger Games to die for everyone's entertainment. Yes. And, to, and to pacify the population. Like, that was... Can I just say that scene was done brilliantly. I love that scene in the movie. It was such a wonderful translation of the book. I love how they did that. It was great. That was somewhat of a forehead smacker for me. That she gets into power. Literally, the first... The first thing she wants to do is have another Hunger Games after removing this guy for, among other things, having the Hunger Games. It's it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, that's not a criticism. Uh, it, it, it's fine characterization for her and all. And I think Katniss got the subtlety, or got some subtlety there, when she voted to have the new Hunger Games. And I think... That might have been the moment she decided that Coin had to die, too. Because she votes for the Hunger Games. Obviously, she can't allow there to be more Hunger Games. But she can vote for it in order to get into the position she wants, knowing that once she kills Coin, there is no way that is happening. Yes, thank you. I am so glad you got that from the movie. There are people that didn't even get that from the book when it's practically explicitly spelled out. I am so glad that that translated in the movie to somebody who didn't already know the story. And did you see, I talked about this in one of the earlier sections, that Katniss and Hamish always had this level of understanding between them. Did you see the way they were sort of exchanging looks during that vote? Because you remember Hamish's vote, he didn't vote yes, he voted I'm with the Mockingjay. They were on the exact same page there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He he was de- he definitely understood where she was going, I yeah. think. She she basically she votes yes to sort of lull Coin into thinking she's on her side so that Coin won't suspect that she's about to kill her. Yeah, when Peta had it exactly right. He just said, "No, this is crazy. This is why we fought the revolution." And Johanna's reaction, meanwhile, was in character with her. I know you want to talk about her character in this movie. Oh, I thought Johanna was wonderful in this movie. She wasn't there all that much, and they actually cut some of her scenes. But, God, her characterization was just spot on in this movie. And Jenna Malone did a great job acting it. All of her scenes were just great. I especially loved the scene where Katniss wakes up in the District 13 infirmary after getting shot. And Johanna is there to steal her morphling drip because they've cut her off. <laughs> that scene, oh man, that scene was done great. Jenna Malone is great in that scene, and all the Johanna scenes were just really good. I was very, very, very impressed with the way they handled Johanna in this movie. Can I just say, from my perspective, it took me a little while to remember Johanna? <laughs> well, she wasn't exactly in the, the third movie much. She had, like, one second at the end after she's rescued. I suppose she was in the last movie. 
Uh, and she, I think, had a different hairstyle than she had in the second movie. Well, yeah, they shaved her head as they, part of the torture. Yes, I, I got that when I realized who she was. But that did take me a little while. Well, I'll, I guess I'll, that's understandable. Although when I did remember her, it all clicked into place because she was, you know, the person in the second movie who gave no shits. And yes. she really gives no shits here. Yeah, I, she already gave no shits in the arena in the second book. And after being tortured in the Capitol for however many months, she really gives no shits. Yeah, she's the one who who votes for the new Hunger Games just out of anger and spite, and that part is completely believable. Did you notice the reason she gave for voting for the games? All of them gave reasons for their votes, and they were all very important, but do you remember the reason Johanna gave? Uh, She was the one who pointed out that President Snow has kids, right? President Snow has a granddaughter. Who is shown in movies two and three. Yeah, yeah. She's, she doesn't actually appear in the books. She's just mentioned by Johanna. But they actually show her in movies two or three. So at the end when Johanna says President Snow has a granddaughter. You know what little girl Johanna wants to send into the games. Yeah, exactly. Just out of spite and pain. Yes. I thought, I thought all of them gave reasons and all of them were good reasons. You know, Enobaria wants the capital to experience what the districts have had to go through, which is fine. Beatty gives the sort of more academic reason that, you know, we have to stop seeing each other as enemies. And the thing about it is that Coyne, when she presents the idea, she has a perfectly logical argument to make. You know, the, the districts have such a bloodlust for the people in the capital that have been brutalizing and oppressing them for so long... We can't let them go on an execution spree. This way, only 23 people die. It's a perfectly logical argument to make. Yeah, in any revolution in media, there is always either a depiction of or a fear of the way culture sort of absorbed the French Revolution. Where the imp- the general impression people have about it without knowing a lot of the specifics is that the hoi polloi revolted and just had a murder spree among the ruling class. Well, if you look at, say, the attitude expressed by Gale in this movie, do you think he would have objected to an execution spree in the Capitol? I'm not sure there's a whole lot the revolution could have done that would have put Gale off of it entirely. Even at the end... In his last scene, I believe it's his last scene in the movie, when he goes to see Katniss and and the one thing she wants to know is the bombing of civilians and pretty much just civilians that killed her sister after luring in so many of the Capitol's kids, whether that was the revolution or whether it was Snow because she doesn't really know what to believe. And... Gale tearfully admits that he doesn't know, but he's still working for them. Yeah, he's still working for the new government, and it's mentioned at the end when Peter's reading Annie's letter, it's mentioned that Gale has a job maintaining security in District 2. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah so no. he's still with the military slash police slash new peacekeepers, whatever they're called, he's still working in that capacity for the new government. Yeah, and hopefully he doesn't fall under the sway of anyone else willing to use his fervor for horrible, horrible things. Yes. That is sort of the main break between Katniss and Gale. And they sort of... 
They hint at it a bit in the first movie. They get to it a little bit in the first movie. Like, there's that scene where Gale is like, you know, we need to respond to this. And Katniss asks, well, when did we become you and Coin instead of you and me? Right. You know, but that is the main break between Katniss and Gale is that Gale is willing to do whatever it takes. He is firebrand revolutionary Storm the Bastille guy. And Katniss is not. Katniss has been to the Capitol. Katniss has met people in the Capitol. She, more than a lot of them, has been hurt by the Capitol. But she's also met people from the Capitol and view, can view them as humans. Individual humans. And not as a monolithic group of people, all of whom deserve to be punished. There's an argument that they have in the book about characters that aren't in the movie... I guess characters that Effie replaces in the movie. There are people from the Capitol that are brought to 13 to help prepare Katniss for the propos that Plutarch wants to film. And they break one of the 13 rules about trying to smuggle food out of the cafeteria back to their living quarters. And so they are chained up in one of the sub-basements in a room that is described as having a drain in the floor. Because why do you lock up your prisoners in a room that has a drain in the floor? And Katniss finds these people and brings them up to the infirmary to get treated by her mother and her sister. And later Katniss and Gail have an argument about it where Gail's like, why do you care about these capital people? They broke the rules and they got punished. What do you care about them? Why are you trying to defend them? They sent you into the games. Why do you care about their well-being now? And Katniss is trying to respond to say, well... They're just part of the system. They're not entirely at fault for the system. And they're individual people and they don't deserve to have this happen to them just because they happen to be involved in a corrupt system. But she doesn't really have the skills to enunciate that point. She doesn't have the vocabulary that Beatty does to say we, we can't view them as enemies. Yeah. She's, she's trying to make the point that they were, they were raised to believe that and, and they didn't know any better. They did their best to help me in their own way. Even though their own way was primping me and making me look as good as I can on camera before I go into the death match. But they did try to help me in that respect. But she doesn't really have the skills, the verbal skills to express the idea she's trying to express. And Gail is not exactly a person who would listen to it anyway. So that is the main break between Katniss and Gail. Is Gail is much more into the revolution than Katniss. Gail is all about... Winning the revolution, punishing the capital. Katniss is all about individual people. Protecting Prim, protecting Peta, protecting her family, protecting Gale, protecting the people she knows from the capital. Even though they were involved in the corrupt system, they're still people. And she still doesn't want to see them harmed. That's the break between Katniss and Gale that ultimately leads to Gale building a double exploding bomb in order to entrap medics and killing Prim. That's also, uh, after that, uh, what leads to the resolution of the Love Triangle of Doom. Love Triangle. I told you there was more Love Triangle in this movie. So much Love Triangle in this movie. Uh, they really, really banged on it. There was even, I think, the only scene in the whole series where Peta and Gale actually get to have a conversation. Yes. And, of course, it's about Katniss, and it's good to an extent that after, like, the wartime conversation about, you know, oh, well, I don't think all of us are making it out of this alive, so that might make the decision for us. Uh, I, I like that after that, 
when Gale considers what happens if all three of them do make it out, that he doesn't say something like, well, we'll just have to duke it out, or, you know, I'll get it because I'm a big revolutionary. What he says is, she'll have to choose. Okay, there is that. Okay. It's a small, small... I'm grasping here, okay? (laughs) I am grasping for any consolation I can take out of this thing. It's a small consolation that at least they acknowledge the fact that she has a choice here. They don't acknowledge that she has the choice to not wind up with either of them, uh, because that's just not the story we're telling here. So well, it wouldn't be a love triangle if she didn't wind up with one of them. Sure, it would. It would just be a result. It would just be one that's not resolved with either of them. <laughs> but that's, I guess, I guess that's a whole other thing. But that's that's another way that Katniss has to like take hand of her own story and make her own decisions and try to live her best life or whatever. Well, the thing is, in this movie we see very similar to what Katniss does in the first book that doesn't necessarily get translated that well into the first movie, I don't think. But in this fourth movie, you definitely see Katniss has made a choice. But she doesn't quite realize it and she doesn't want to acknowledge it, but she keeps showing her choice despite herself. How do you mean? Like, why does she go to try to kill President Snow? What does she say right before she leaves to try to kill President Snow? She says it in District 2, and then she reiterates... She says in District 2, he corrupts everyone. Who did yes. he corrupt? He corrupted PETA. Right before she leaves District 13, she has that meeting with PETA... Where Peta is an asshole because he's still half hijacked. And she walks out of that room and goes straight to Coin and says, Snow has to pay for what he's done. Well, what has he done? Right. She just walked out of meeting hijacked Peta, And that's why she says, Snow has to pay for what he's done. I'm going to go sneak off and kill him. Hijacked Peta, who brought up the bread scene again. Which they're still trying to explain four movies later. <laughs> Yes, that that scene where they talk about the bread incident is a lot more poignant to book readers who understand the bread scene. But in throughout the their trip through the Capitol, Peta sits there and says, "I'm the Capitol mutt. I tried to I killed a member of our squad. I tried to kill Katniss. I'm going to lose control again. Kill me." And Katniss, actually, I don't think she says it in the movie. In the book, Katniss is the one that says, "No, we're not going to kill you." Well, she certainly refused to kill him. But that, again, shows on his part how important her judgment is to him, in a way, when he's good PETA and not bad PETA. Because she calls him a mutt, and it becomes this mimetic thing that that gets folded into his own self-loathing. Which self-loathing is part of the trauma that he's experienced, part of his reaction to that trauma. Katniss doesn't really have that sort of self-loathing. Katniss doesn't have self-loathing like that. She just thinks herself unworthy. So yeah, She more... doesn't think she's worthy of this adulation she receives as the victor. She doesn't think she's worthy of the adulation she receives as the revolutionary figurehead. She, she doesn't think she's worthy of these people following her. I mean, they have that scene in Tigress's basement where she basically says... I led you into a disaster by trying to drag you along with my singular mission to kill Snow. And everyone's like, we knew that. We followed you willingly. And she doesn't think she's worthy of any of that. And in in that scene, 
It's PETA who finally convinces her, listen, you've got the right idea. This is what we have to do. And everyone agreed, and that's why they followed you. Everyone else sort of says that. Cressida says that, and Gail says that, and Katniss keeps denying it. Once PETA says it, she starts to accept it. Right, because once again, at least when he is good PETA, yeah. he still has the ability to, re- to reassure her. The reason that I'm framing the love story in terms of Katniss trying to take hold of her own story and try to tell her own story is that it might be really cynical on my part and it might be kind of looking for things to criticize in a way, but Katniss finally gets a hold on her own story. She finally gets to make her choices and tell her own story and she chooses to tell Gale to fuck off because of the things that he's complicit in. And then she makes the choice to be alone back at home, which apparently is livable even though the district has been bombed out. But okay. She she makes this choice and then Peter shows up and shows a little bit of kindness. And now that she can make her choices, she has a hold on her own story. The story that she chooses is a long-term relationship with a man with two kids like she chooses okay now i'm gonna have a nuclear family that is a criticism a lot of people have of the story if you're looking for a more atypical ending for the heroine this is not the story that has it especially in a story that had an atypical bent on the revolution aspect for it to be so stereotypical with the end of the love story was a little bit jarring. Although you could say that given Katniss's trauma, given her baseline trauma of losing her father at such a young age and having a family that wasn't functional, that her fantasy might be that sort of stereotypical nuclear family with two loving parents and two beautiful children, that that sort of pastoral scene at the end where she's just kind of placidly sitting on the hill coddling her baby talking about her PTSD that with that part I did I did I did appreciate the sort of acknowledgement of mental illness did you have a nightmare I know about that they never go away but you can deal with it and you can live so maybe that's just her living her fantasy of having that you know, rich, rewarding family life and being able to provide that for a couple of children. Well, there is... That is an argument within fandom where people say... Because in the books, she says... And she says in the first movie. It's one of her first scenes in the first movie. She's sitting with Gail out in in, in a meadow out in the woods and she says, I'm never having kids. Right. And she doesn't really go into detail about that. Although Gail points out, well, I might if I didn't live here. You know, if I didn't live where I'm forced to work in mines for starvation wages and can't feed my family and kids might get reaped into the Hunger Games, if I didn't live here, then I might. And Katniss says, but you do. The book is very similar where Katniss says a few times, I don't want kids. I don't want to have kids here. I don't want to have kids who could be reaped. I don't want to have kids who could starve to death. I don't want to have kids who I could abandon the way my father abandoned our family. Abandon isn't the right word to use there, but... In effect. In effect, yeah. I don't want to have kids who would be forced to go through the things I've been forced to go through. Right, exactly. She makes that point several times. And there is 
the there is a disagreement within fandom between people that want want a more atypical ending than the sort of fairy tale ending where they say you know why does she have to wind up with kids she said she didn't want kids versus the other people who say well she always said she didn't want kids because she couldn't stand to see them reaped she didn't want kids because she couldn't stand to see them starve she didn't want kids who would have to go through the same traumas she's gone through now she has all that there's no more games there's no more starvation there's no more threat of imminent death around every corner now the conditions are finally such that she is interested in having a family yes hopefully in addition to there being no more hunger games president coin uh hopefully there is also no more hunger that's the strong implication yeah because if there was she probably would never have had children Right, so so this is presumably, like, actually a better world. Like, the material social conditions that people are living under, or at least that she's living under, are better enough. That is the strong implication, because she says several times all of the things that she would not want any child to suffer through, and therefore she is not going to have a child. So the strong implication is that under this new regime, at this time, at the time of the epilogue, no child of hers would ever have to suffer through those things. Speaking of the new regime, as we know by now, I sometimes have a little difficulty picking actors out, but the woman who was elected the new president was the military leader from earlier in the movie, right? Yes, she was the military leader earlier in the movie, and did you recognize her from movie three? She she was in movie three? She was the rebel commander in District 8 when the hospital got blown up. Oh, okay. That's that's the same character. That, that makes sense. So, with a military leader taking over, is that supposed to be at all ominous? I don't think that's supposed to be ominous in itself, because... We don't know much about Paler, but I mean, what we know about her, she's a good person. I mean, we see her in District 8, you know, manning a machine gun of some sort, trying to fire back at the hovercrafts that are coming in to bomb the hospital. And she's sort of, uh, she's sort of gruff because she's commanding this district that just got the shit bombed out of it. And she's got all these people in a hospital, and then, you know, here comes the camera crew... <laughs> With all these capital people and the Mockingjay in her costume. Right. And, and and so she's sort of not quite on the same page. Right. And but, but she's never shown to be, you know, power hungry or vicious or anything like that. Again, the strong implication is that she'll be a decent leader. The one, if you want to call it ominous, and a lot of people don't even think this is ominous, but I think it's very ominous. The one note is that... If you look at her inauguration, and in the scene in the movie, they explicitly point this out, Plutarch is still right there. He's somehow managed to work through snow, through coin, onto Paler. He's still in charge of government propaganda. And that shot of the inauguration with Plutarch there, that they see through the holographic TV or whatever, is, I think, the only shot in the movie that I picked out as CGI Philip Seymour Hoffman. I didn't pick up on that. I didn't notice that. He looked, to my eye at least, a little plasticky, but he was on the edge of this holographic screen, which could kind of cover it up. The rest, I mean, they were obviously working around what they had filmed when Philip Seymour Hoffman died. Exactly. There are parts, there are scenes, entire scenes in this movie 
that the character is in, and there are a couple reaction shots and close-ups, but he's not really in the wide shots. Yes, now that you mention it, the scene where Coin is giving her eulogy for Katniss, when they cut back to show her filming, Philip Seymour Hoffman is sitting right next to her, but he never says anything in that scene. I didn't pick up on that. The one thing that jumped out at me is at the end where all of Plutarch's lines are delivered via a letter Hamish reads aloud. Yes, well, obviously they, they were um, kind of in the lurch there. Yeah. But other than a couple of places, I mean, they compensated for it pretty well. I thought so. It didn't jump out at me at all, so. Sure. He might just as well have been a character who got kind of short shrift uh, given the plot that the movie had to go through. Uh, like Effie, who had very little to do, but I I was very happy to see that she finally finished that dress she was sewing in the last movie. Okay. I still don't like anything about Effie's characterization in movies three and four. Well, okay. You alluded to how this diverged from the book. What is she doing in the book? In the book... She is taken prisoner after Katniss and the rest of them escape the capital. It's intimated that she is tortured in some manner, although it's never gone into detail. She is not seen. They see her during the interviews, when she brings them down for the interviews. After the interviews, she's gone. Because, remember, PETA drops that baby bomb and it causes chaos and they send everyone off. So the last time you see Effie is when she brings them to the interviews before the quarter quell. When they go back up to the suite, it's just Katniss, Peeta, and Hamish. And then Katniss and Peeta go into the arena, and then Katniss gets rescued from the arena, and she goes to 13. So Effie brings them to the interviews before the quarter quell, and the next time you see Effie is the morning of the execution. She shows up in Katniss's suite of rooms where she's staying in the president's mansion. And she's described as having a haunted look in her eyes. And she's very subdued compared to how Effie used to be. I'm not sure if it's Hamish that says it. Somebody mentions that Hamish and Plutarch basically had to fight a war with the people in charge to spare her from being executed for her crimes of being involved in the games. And it, it counted very much in her favor that she was imprisoned by Snow throughout the entire revolution. That was sort of shown as evidence of she's really on our side, even though she never really was, but please don't kill her. And so she shows up at Katniss's suite of rooms to, you know, help her get ready for her public execution of Snow. And she doesn't exist between those two points. Between the interview before the quell and when she's rescued from whatever prison Snow has her in, and she shows up to help Katniss get ready for the execution. Where she is... You know, showing the effects of her imprisonment and whatever treatment she received during it. Interesting. Uh, yeah, very different from the character who kind of almost blithely kind of sashays through the last couple of movies. Yes, I hate that her character rather blithely sashays through the revolution. Although she, Effie is a character who might do that, but I, I just... I hate that other people tolerate it. You mean, I mean, the other, you mean the other characters? I think it hurts other characters' characterization that they tolerate Effie blithely sashaying through the revolution. Uh, 
You remember when Effie sits down to have a meal with Gale in 13? Do you honestly think that if Gale sat down with Effie, he wouldn't punch her in the face? Well, she's... Or use her to test a double-exploding bomb or something like that? Well, I, I suppose, sure, because she's the enemy, right? Exactly. She's complicit in everything. How, oh, is, uh, how is Effie blithely sashaying, bringing Katniss around, like, you know, Oh, I remember the first time I brought you here. Meanwhile, you know, if you didn't pick my sister's name out of the reaping ball, she'd still be alive. Sure. So I think, I, I, it's not so much that I think she's mischaracterized, but I think it hurts everyone else's character that they accept her blithely sashaying her way through the revolution. That is, that is a point. And maybe these movies could have survived without a comic relief element. But she still kind of provides one. I wonder how much of that is the character becoming really popular after the first movie. Because she was great. She was great in the first movie. I still say that to this day. One of the very few things the first movie did extremely, extremely well was Effie. So That's I, why it's such a disappointment that she's not as good in the others. Well, okay. I mean, I see your point there. I still... I enjoy the fact that there is a little bit of a comic relief element in the middle of the trauma and oppression and revolution and war and death and, and all of this. She's a little bit of variety. I, I think that's the function she fills in the movie. She's also someone who represents, you know, a capital citizen's response to the revolution. Not, not the response of someone who is a snow loyalist. Not the response of someone who is passionately invested in the continuation of the status quo, but someone who, again, blithely, I think is the best word to describe her in all respects, yes. but just kind of blithely is raised in it and works in it and accepts it because that's just how society works, dear. Exactly. See, in the book, she sort of shows how capital citizens fare under the capital because she's the escort for the games. She's part of the apparatus of child murder but as soon as she becomes tangentially connected to Katniss Everdeen, revolutionary figure, she's snatched up and thrown in prison and probably tortured in some manner. Because President Snow doesn't care. Okay, so let's talk about the epilogue a little. Okay. A little more, rather. Did it seem to you at all like the epilogue at the end of Harry Potter Part 7, Part 2? <laughs> Because that was sort of the impression that I got. That's what everything gets compared to at this point, isn't it? Sure. I mean, it is. That there's this huge war that is eventually won. Uh, Harry Potter, of course, being a rather uncomplicated war uh, compared to this one. Or, I, I don't know all the background, so maybe. But then, after all this stress and strivation and trauma and, and death and all of this, there's this epilogue that is just kind of placid and happy, which I guess would be sort of a reward for the viewer, right? If you are really invested in these, in these characters, you're really invested in, in Katniss in such a way that your thought is, you know, can't she just be happy someday? That we have this scene where it's at least her being happy someday. How do you think that scene worked? 
I thought it was a very game attempt to translate the epilogue into a film. Because the epilogue, again, this, this is the main problem with so much of the book. It's all Katniss's internal monologue. And they made a game attempt by having about half her internal monologue spoken out loud to the baby. Well, that, that's a good way to explain a lot of internal dialogue. And the rest of it, I suppose, was supposed to be portrayed in those long shots of J-Law kind of looking into the distance. Well, there's a whole part, other than the part about I still have my nightmares and I still deal with the repercussions and all of that, there's also a part of the epilogue where she reflects... It sort of reflects her fears about children from earlier in the book where she says, you know, I have these children now. Someday I'm going to have to tell them about the war. Oh God, how am I going to tell them about the war? And she has all these worries about that. Like, how do I tell them about everything that we went through without scaring the shit out of them and tearing their innocence into tiny little bits? So she has that fear and she expresses that fear also, which didn't make it into the movie version of the epilogue. I appreciated the attempt to translate her internal monologue into something the movie viewer could watch. I wasn't crazy about how they framed the whole thing, where Katniss is over here with one kid and Peeta is way over there with the other kid. I would have preferred to have, like, the two kids playing together and then Katniss and Peeta sitting together rather than having them separated like that, but that's just my thing. Do you think it would have been too uh, cloyingly sweet if they started doing real or not real with the kid? Oh, I'm not sure they would do that. Because the real or not real was very much centered around PETA's recovery and PETA trying to sort out his hijacked memories. I'm not. Sh I'm not sure they would turn that into a game with the kids. I don't. I don't mean like a game. I just mean the scene I'm picturing in my head is almost like little Johnny. Did you knock the vase over? Oh no, mommy, I didn't. Real or not real? Yeah, I really don't think they'd do that. Um, <laughs> that would very much fall under the auspices of you know. I don't think they would do that. Not with their not with their history of psychological trauma, not with Katniss's almost pathological fear of inflicting her own traumas on her children. I don't think they'd do that. Yeah, that for sure would have been too, too, too much. I guess I'm just trying to think... I just would have preferred if the scene had Katniss and Peeta sitting together rather than like 50 feet apart from each other and looking at each other every now and then. Sure, I, I guess I'm just looking for some way to take... Um, as I mentioned before, the really nice acknowledgement that even in this pastoral, brightly lit, sunshiny future, Cadness still has nightmares, she still has PTSD, she still has trauma, because that doesn't go away. That doesn't go away, and it also doesn't necessarily prevent you from having a nice pastoral afternoon playing with the kids in the sunlit meadow. Exactly. It, it's just something... That hopefully uh, you learn to live with at some point. You you develop coping strategies, which is and, what she talks about, right? Exactly, and and I guess I'm just thinking of some way to kind of wrap in Peta's coping techniques and Peta's trauma as well, and the fact that as we mentioned before, one of the things they have in common is very similar trauma from similar experiences, and I suppose that's shipper fuel to an extent, but it's also psychologically legitimate. Well, the way they wrap in Peta's recovery from trauma is the last scene before the epilogue, where Katniss and Peta are in bed together, and Peta asks her, you know, they, they don't, like, make grand declarations. Peta asks her, you love me. 
Real or not real? Yeah. That, that's sort of how they incorporate PETA's trauma recovery. Yeah, how sweet. Depends who you ask. Yeah, I'm not even I'm I'm not even criticizing that much. It it's some of it was genuinely sweet and some of it was genuinely moving a little bit. Um after they ended the love triangle. Well, the problem the movie has is they raced through so much of it. What do you think they really raced through? Because, I mean, they divided the book into two movies. The two movies were pretty long, and they did move. Well, Katniss's opinion of PETA seems to swing wildly. First, she's all gung-ho about let's heal PETA, and then Hamish says, well, we want you to try to talk to him. And she's like, no, I don't want anything to do with this. And then when she's in District 2, she specifically says, this is what Snow does. He corrupts people. And then she decides, I'm going to kill Snow to punish him for what he did to PETA. But then when PETA actually shows up, she says, he's just a capital mutt. I'll kill him if I have to. And then, like, two scenes later, she's the one saying, no, don't kill him. We can, you know, I'll help bring him back. I'll kiss him, and then he'll remember that he loves me. Yeah, that moment was uh, a, I, a little rich. So I, I just thought they sort of moved too quickly from one to the next to the next without really... Again, like in Catching Fire, they didn't really show her development from one stage of the relationship to the next. They didn't show all the development that went between he's just a capital mutt, I'll kill him if I have to, to that's still PETA in there, I can get him back. They didn't really show the development that went from one to the other. They just showed one and then they showed the other, and to me, trying to judge the movie, knowing what actually happened in the book, it just seemed like it happened too quickly. That's fair. I think a lot of those swings could be explained by thinking about how much physical or emotional threat she specifically was under in specific moments. Like, when she's not with him and being assaulted by him, she wants to heal him because she wants that rock that she can cling to back. But then when she's faced with the prospect of confronting him, when he's still in a state where he can't assault her physically, so he assaults her emotionally. Yes. Uh, that is something that she balks at, because, God, hasn't she been through enough? Well, that is very much, and that comes out from the story in the book. I don't know how, that, how much of that translated into the movie. You'd have to tell me. But it's very much everything that's been going on with her in the last two years. PETA was all most of the time the person she could rely on. He was the one that had the shared trauma of being in the games with her. He was the one that was with her when she was on this tour and having to give all these speeches and put on these shows for all the districts and for the capital. He was the one with her to help her through it. He's the one that knew what she was going through. Gail could never understand having to act in front of the capital cameras or else her family gets slaughtered. You know, Hamish is just sort of a surly drunk trying to berate her through it. Peta is the one she could always rely on. And then she goes to District 13 and she's just sort of adrift. Because she doesn't have PETA there to help her through this like she did in the games and on the tour. And then when PETA finally comes back, first he tries to strangle her. And then he uses his vaunted way with words to slice her apart emotionally. So that very much affects her when the one person she thought she could always rely on, suddenly she can't rely on them anymore. And that does fuel some of her sort of more spiteful actions toward him where... They do have that one scene where she visits him in the hospital and she starts sniping right back at him rather than saying, oh, he's still hijacked. Let me try to help him remember the real thing. She just starts sniping back at him. 
because she can't handle that this person, the one person that was with her through all of it that she thought she could always rely on, is now sitting here sniping at her. Yeah, definitely, definitely. A lot of it is her trying to be brave and trying to be strong and, again, trying to fill roles to an extent, and sometimes not. So, as we uh, start to wrap up here, I want to mention the music here a little bit. The scores for these movies by James Newton Howard have not been the most expressive, I think. Have, have not quite been in my wheelhouse. They've been a little atmospheric, but there were a few sections in this movie that I thought were really nice, and the one that really stood out to me was when they were looking for a place to film video with Katniss and Peeta, and they went into the town square before it got flooded, and there's this incredible orchestral version of the Hanging Tree song from the last movie. Well, they start that in the scene when Katniss is on guard duty, and they start playing real or not real. And Katniss goes into her whole, her whole speech of, you're a painter, you're a baker, you don't take sugar in your tea, you sleep with the windows open. Like, all these little things that she knows about PETA. That's when they start that, and it's such a good piece of music. Yeah, yeah, just just incredible. It's the one thing that, while watching these movies, really, really leapt out at me. Also, I found it very interesting that they included, in that speech of Katniss's, they included the line that you're a painter... When they have never shown him painting in any of the movies. Well, he did his camouflage in the first movie. Okay. You know, he he knew how to paint his arm like a bunch of leaves because he was icing them cakes. Yeah, is that all you do? <laughs> Ice them cakes! I don't care what it takes. You know, folks, we've had a lot of fun here today. I, I think we, we've had our fun. We've taken a deep penetrating dive into these movies and it is time for us to sign off uh but first i just want to tell you how you can reach us if you would like to send any questions comments uh you can find me at glennibun g-l-e-n-n-i-e-b-u-n on tumblr and on twitter uh, you can find Place to Be Nation, the site that is joyfully hosting this show, on Facebook and leave uh, comments on our uh, Facebook page once this goes up. Uh, or if you would like to send an email into the show, you can reach me at glennb at placetobenation.com. That is Glenn with two N's. Uh, Scott, is there anywhere you want people to find you or are you just ghosting? I am very effectively hidden online. All right. Well, thank you very much, folks. We, I think, have had a good time looking at The Hunger Games, and we'll now probably never talk about this again. Unless I finally get you to read the books. Yeah, uh, that might be unlikely. <laughs> Thanks a lot, folks. Have a good night.
not so much into the books or the movies or whatever, but just into the story, into the themes, in, into the whole... What's the word I'm looking for? Fix it in editing. Oh, God. 